I care a lot about the splendor of our universe. By that, I mean stuff beyond the earth, just the way that physics works and that, that we have a universe at all and that it's got stars and galaxies and that you can have places that form life. It's very complex. It's rich. It's beautiful. It's amazing and doesn't care about us. Nature does not care that we're here. We're just sort of along for the ride. Just like I care about how the universe works, I care about the fact that we know that it works this way. So I care about that knowledge. And I care about the earth. I care about, you know, I put myself mentally in places that have been very meaningful, whether it's Alaska or Grand Canyon or backpacking trips where immersed in nature, again, I feel insignificant. I'm just, I'm lucky to be a part of it but I'm not its master. I'm a guest on this planet. I feel that we owe it to the planet and other species to do right by it and not just make a mess of things. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, If others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Everybody thinks about the environment. Nearly everyone also gets bogged down in questions. Will this or that change make a difference? What does all the science mean? One of the great things about science is that there are answers to all these questions. Science is a study of nature. People associate it with going to the moon or people in lab coats, but it's about nature. Sunsets, gravity, why is the sky blue? and everything about global warming, pollution, resource depletion, and all these environmental issues. Using computers, motors, eyeglasses, and so on means your life relies on science. I find it beautiful, which is why I got the PhD in physics. I also find it informative. Also, mathematics is the language of nature. You may associate it with hard tests in school and asking if you need it later in life. You may not use it in your life, but it's useful. Not understanding science or math means not knowing how to reach or understand these answers resulting from studying nature and its patterns. Even understanding science doesn't mean knowing the answers. You have to do the experiments and calculate the results. My guest today, Tom Murphy, created a blog called Do the Math, where he calculates the main questions on the environment. Solar, wind, nuclear. When someone says we can't grow forever, why not? What works? What doesn't? Independent of how you feel about it. This episode is long, but I believe it may be the most important conversation I have on understanding environmental issues. It's certainly one that I enjoyed tremendously. I've been waiting to have a conversation like this for years. We don't talk about the math details, which you can find on his site amid engaging conversation and also followed by debate by people who disagree with him among his readership. The point of understanding the math is to liberate you from arguing about opinion to learning priorities and what works to do in what order. I urge you to listen to it all the way through and read his wonderful blog, Do the Math. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Tom Murphy. Tom, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. I'm going to start off. If I make you blush, I'm going to make you blush. But I think your site is one of the top sites on the internet. And there's a three-way tie, in my view, for my favorite site. So there's yours, which is the Do the Math blog. And I'm going to, we'll say in a second what it's all about. 
Then there's Sustainability Without the Hot Air, which is really more of a book, but it's similar. And your blog links to that one. Both of those are by physicists. I believe you both went to Caltech. That's right. Or at least, at least David McKay spent time there, maybe as a postdoc. And then you went off in the world and looked at the world and the environment. There's, everyone knows the environment is a big issue. And people just kind of look at it and they don't really, like, they'll talk about reducing straw use and they feel great about it. But does that really make much of a difference? Does it, maybe it's a good start. Maybe, who knows? You know, and, and actually there are answers because we can measure these things and we can figure these things out. And you actually do it and you do the math and you present it in, in my opinion, a fun, engaging, accessible way. And let me just say the third one. Do you know the low-tech magazine? I do not know that. Sounds oh, great, though. I think, I think you're going to like I'm a big fan of low-tech. Then you're going to like the site. It's prepared that you're going to get lost in it. Not lost in it, but you're going to enjoy it. Let me just say that we're on a Zoom conversation, so you can see the background here. Of course, the listeners can't do that. But I'm in a lab that has you know, a lot of high-tech stuff, and I'm sort of pushing at least my knowledge uh, limits lately on, on uh, some high-tech development. And yet, I'm a huge fan of simple, low-tech solutions. So I live in a kind of a dual world where I embrace the sort of cutting edge of, of high technology, but I'm also skeptical of it and would, would often like to go simple. And so I like the sound of this magazine. Yeah, I think that you're part of a certain class of people that understands technology and values it for what it does. But ultimately, if I read, and this is like jumping to the end, which I think hopefully we'll get to, but ultimately it's about values and how you live by what you think is right and what you think is important. And when technology serves that great, when it doesn't, you stick with the values. And I think a lot of people miss that. They can get lost in the science or the, the math. Yeah, and I think the appeal, you know, technology is really miraculous in some cases. I mean, it's almost the definition of magic in a in some sense because if you took our technology to a primitive culture, it would look like magic. And so we're also enamored of that same magical sense and and uh and awe over some of the things that we can create, but we get a little carried away on that and we we sort of um you know, almost becomes a religion, a belief that technology can do anything and it can save any predicament. So that's, that's where I draw the line. Actually, if you just stop there, you might say, well, how can I pick one or the other? And what I find so engaging about your blog is that you ask the question and you actually answer it. Like, would it work to put a giant satellite in space to get the energy from the sun and then beam it down to the earth? Sounds like it should work, or maybe we should switch all to biofuels. And it's not just opinion as to whether these things would work or not. And there's a lot of uncertainty, but on some things, it's really the uncertainty is actually small compared to the the answers. Like, I mean, you figure out based on physical principles, like how low can if we can make things more and more efficient, what does that get us? Does it really get us that far? And if we are going to grow. You know, some people say, well, we'll just keep growing. Drill, baby, drill. And some people say, well, we can't grow forever. But saying we can't grow forever, what actually are the limits? And you present some basic, to me, accessible and simple ways of looking at things. Can you talk about, I mean, I probably want to get into those. I'm also kind of curious how you got started. Maybe you can say a little bit about you, how you got started asking these questions and then answering them. Yeah, sure. Okay, so... 
I guess I was always somewhat interested in the story of our, our society, how we do things, how we um, get our energy, et cetera. And I, I remember as a, as a postdoc, uh, I was at the University of Washington, I became interested in this topic uh, just sort of marginally and, and dabbled a bit. And when I arrived at UCSD, University of California, San Diego in 2003, I got a teaching assignment to teach energy in the environment. And I thought, okay, that's really neat. This will be a great opportunity for me to learn what this business is all about, what our options are. I was vaguely aware that uh, you know fossil fuels are not the forever solution, but I imagine that there were a lot of other interesting and cool new technologies that would step in and fill the void. I was definitely of the opinion at the time that you know the the stone age didn't end because we ran out of stones and you know the fossil fuel age is not going to end because we're running out of fossil fuels it's that we will find better things and so i i took this course as uh this course assignment as an opportunity to dig in and understand what i thought the future was going to look like just kind of build a picture for for how i imagine things might go and i I interrupt but do do i read you right that when I read your stuff now, it seems like it's you write the post after having done the math, but before you did it, you what you described sounds like everyone. Like you didn't have any, you didn't start off with a preconception or you just start off. Yeah, I mean things are pretty good. There, there's some problems, but we'll work it out. Sure, and and I would say I even started out with optimism that you know we're, we're going to. I didn't see a, a great looming crisis. I just saw that things are changing and we're going to change with it and we're going to adopt solar and wind and all these great things. But I, I wanted to sort of pencil it out and see, well, exactly what is that mix going to look like? Do I think, of course, it's impossible to really be certain about anything in, in you know, future developments of, of this magnitude. But I realized that, you know, a lot of these things pencil out in a mathematical sense that yes, there's such an abundant, influx of solar energy that what we use today as a civilization just pales in comparison and so that would seem to be you know game over that's your answer you could do solar but when you look at at the details and this is where i think my experience as a technology developer and, and user as a scientist can come in because i build things i have an idea that i want to pursue some scientific uh, purpose and I build an instrument to accomplish this, and it's an instrument that nobody's built before. And so you can't just go order things off the shelf. You have to design it. You have to make a lot of uh, choices and compromises. And you realize that you can't just get what you want all the time. Your dreams are good guidance on where you want to go. But at the end of the day, there are limitations from real, real world constraints. And so I think I, I came at this from that perspective that you have to look beyond the just, you know, first back of the envelope uh, calculation about how much solar energy is available, for instance, and, and look at, okay, well, then what? What form is that energy? Is it photovoltaic? Is it solar thermal? What do you do once you have that photovoltaic and solar thermal? How much is it going to cost? Where can you put the detector, the, the arrays? I mean, you can put them in the middle of the ocean or maybe do it in salt water and... Yeah, that's right. So there are a lot of practical concerns that enter. And I think that's one thing that I've valued in my own experience is is that I can balance a lot of things at once, a lot of concerns at once, 
and in a very complex situation in a complex world with many different sort of elements tugging on the problem from one direction or the other and realize that there are a lot of sort of maybe little idiotic things that you might not think are problematic or it just don't they don't occur to you and then when you dig into it or if you actually tried to build something you run into all of these you know real concerns so i came at it from that perspective and in doing so came really came out of this process confused i wasn't sure exactly how we were going to really work this problem it didn't look like a techno fix you know easy migration into uh, the next phase of our glorious civilization. Yeah, because now that I'm, I'm looking back at a lot of your posts, I mean, in mentally, I'm trying to, and I'm seeing now that actually it's more of an exploration. I read it as you had figured out the answers and now you were sharing the answers, but you're actually exploring yourself trying to find these things. It makes it much more... Yeah, I was basically trying to reflect my process. You know, I, I came to these conclusions that alarmed me, that concerned me uh, greatly, and I needed to share that. And so, in fact, you know, there were a number of calculations that I had done and things I'd explored in my personal effort to come to terms with, with uh, our challenges. And so those became ultimately blog posts. You know, this is many years later, and it was very cathartic to finally, you know, flesh out these, these ideas. But there were some that I hadn't really covered yet that I just sort of had left on the, on the shelf. And the blog sort of forced me to uh, turn to those things and kind of check off that that box. And I guess a lot of those things, I already had ideas that, yeah, that's not going to amount to much, like geothermal. I didn't really have to do a detailed analysis to realize that's not going to do a whole lot. But the blog made me, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's on that. And and that was useful because, you know, there, there were some places where I learned from doing this blog exercise and, and my views evolved during the process. And I think the, the most striking thing for me was at the end of all this exploration of what can you get from wind and from tidal and from, you know, solar thermal or whatever, I got to the end and I made this energy matrix to compare all the things I'd looked at mm-hmm. and rate them on not just abundance, but, you know, problems like intermittency, um, efficiency, how easy is it to make to do transportation with this source or how easy is it to do electricity? So I would give points basically for all the all the attributes of each of these technologies and then deductions where they were poor performers. And what I came out with at the end, comparing that exercise to the scores for fossil fuels was really stunning because there's a, this giant gap between the ease and convenience a and a gallon of fuel is like in <laughs> the energy density right and all of these amazing you know safety issues you can uh you know run these a generator in your backyard or whatever you know it, it's very accessible fossil fuels and relatively cheap so what i hadn't really appreciated until i came to kind of the end of that process was just how big the gulf was and so that told me it's not just a flip the switch, transition over from one to the other, there are inconveniences and those translate to costs that and hardships that, you know, make it, it's not just a turnkey kind of a transition that we're looking at. And yet there's a few images. There's one that comes to mind that shows up a lot on your blog of, it's very easy to plot, say, amount of energy we have available to us over time. 
And if you look at it up until now, it's always increasing. If you think of a, a civilizational timescale of a few thousand years, and you go into the future, it goes back down again. And so you have it, you know, when you look over up until a few thousand years from now, our, all the energy we have now is like this little blip that's going to go yeah. back down again. And that is such an important image. I carry it in my mind all the time myself. And in fact, I think it's important enough that if you don't mind, I'll spend a couple minutes kind of mentally, you know, guiding um, listeners through this graph. So imagine a graph that starts at 10,000 years in the past. So this is kind of the beginning of human history in in a sense. And it goes all the way to 10,000 years in the future. And we have no idea what that looks like. But I'm, I'm just taking a large perspective, stepping way back from the picture. And we're going to plot on that timeline how much energy the human endeavor has has uh, put to its use and it basically starts out for the first almost full 10,000 years uh, minus a couple hundred years it's basically invisible on the zero axis we're just just, lighting some sticks on fire every now and then (laughs) yeah it's just not much energy yeah right you know you've got some windmills in holland and you've got some you know animals plowing fields and but on the scale of what we do today, it's, it's on a linear uh, plot. You would not be able to see the energy for almost the entire plot. And then in the last, you know, let's see, I guess 100 years is 1% of that time. So in the last like couple percent of the um, horizontal axis, suddenly this thing just jets up like a rocket, just almost a straight up uh, turn in this curve. And that's a phenomenal, stunning development in human history. This is this is something I think we, we have a hard time recognizing from here in this moment, that we are living in this just truly unprecedented and uh, almost alarming phase of human history. And it's also then now, now that we have this m- image in mind, worth recognizing that that large spike is fossil fuels. That is when we found coal, found oil, found natural gas, and put that, that stuff to use as quickly as our you know, practical kind of limitations would allow. And so we're jetting up and now we're, you know, arguably, well, let, let me just continue the story then. It's jetting up. It's very anomalous. It's fossil fuels. So now if we just transition and make this plot a fossil fuels plot and just say, okay, well, this, since the main feature is fossil fuels, what does that look like? We know it's a finite resource. We know that whether you're optimistic and say that well, we just find better things and we taper off. Or you say that we just run out of the resource. Either way, the plot for fossil fuels looks the same. It drops back down to zero for the next 10,000 years. Yeah, and even if you think there's a lot, on a 10,000-year timescale, it's not a lot. It's not a lot. I mean, there are hundreds of years of fossil fuel, but not thousands of years of fossil fuel. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, it's, it's a spike. We're looking at a spike. And we're sitting near the top, arguably, of this spike on the leading edge. And that should be alarming. This should reset people's perception of what is it we're doing here? What is going on? Then what happens is we have this tendency to extrapolate and say, well, for my whole lifetime, for my parents' lifetime, for my grandparents' lifetime, we've been on this sort of technological tear and we've invented all kinds of different modes of transportation and and forms of, you know, energy conversion and and computers and and if you it's exciting to think about that because you think holy cow 200 years ago nobody could have imagined what our lives today look like nobody could have seen this coming Mm -hmm. and so they think 
let's apply that same mentality to 200 years from now. We can't imagine what amazing Star Trek worlds we're going to be living in. Well, I kind of turn that on its head and say, because we don't really know what's going to happen in the future, and we have you know, legitimate challenges that we're really not paying attention to or acknowledging as a, as a whole, we should still apply that humility. We have no idea what we're looking at in 200 years. But allow yourself the mental flexibility to say, it might not be very good. Mm-hmm. It, might be pre- it might be more primitive. And you, could, you would still be correct in saying, no one today in 2019 would have seen that in 2219, we'd be, you know, beating each other over the heads with, you know, clubs of, uh, you know, cow leg bones, you know, trying to steal each other's food. Wow. It, it just seemed like things were going so well. What happened? So yes, we need humility in understanding the future. But when you look at it from the perspective of this fossil fuels graph and realize that all of our assumptions about our trajectory are crudely extrapolative and not very reliable because the foundation of that big surge is not something we can count on going forward for that kind of time scale. And so it has me worried. All right. So now I want to, I want to contrast the worry with how you've actually implemented it because I don't know if it's because of the, of your blog or because of the course or just because of curiosity, but you've also like you got an electric car and then you, you keep track of all these things. So you, you're not like some people in Silicon Valley are huge on like keeping track of everything, but you do write on what your usage is. And then you keep track of, of the heating in your house and you've gotten solar and, and attached it, not just because, but you take lots of measurements. And what I see is that by doing that, one, you have fun. I read that you have fun with this sort of stuff. Maybe your wife oh, is sure. like, uh, it's doing a little too much. But I feel like you're having fun and it's changing your behavior. And I read that your behavior is you, and maybe I'm projecting onto you what I, what's happened with me, but that the more that I think about this stuff, the more that I act on it, the more that it improves my life. And I'm like, wow, there's a lot of low hanging fruit. And the more that I pick it, the more I'm like, I'm glad I got rid of that. And I'm reading that one, you're finding a better life that uses a lot less fossil fuels. And you like sharing that. And that it's available to anyone. Like this waste, there's a lot of waste. And it's not helping us. It's not making us happier. Yeah, I agree. And I do have fun uh, doing this. Part of that is I'm just a data hound. I love, you know, collecting information. But also the information, it's more than just numbers and data. It's actually um, a call to action. It's a challenge to yourself. You, You see what your baseline is. And then you ask the question, huh? what can I do about that? You know, is that high? Is that low? But, you know, where could I trim? And how much would that effect would that have? So you take ownership of your own sort of resource life. And you're not, you don't feel as um, beholden to the system when, and and dependent when things happen. I remember there was a, a striking event in San Diego in, I guess it was 2011, September, where the entire county lost electricity for you know, 12 hours or so. And it was really an interesting window into what this, what our dependencies look like, because there were a lot of, you know, traffic was gridlocked because traffic lights didn't work. So cars sitting idling would run out of gas. And so cars were sitting on the side of the road. 
Uh, there were many cars at gas stations who had made it to a gas station, but there's nothing they could do there. They couldn't pump gas. If you need the candles, all that, all that source of power and they can't actually pump the gas because you can't pump the gas. So the, the whole place was really immobilized and you couldn't buy candles if you needed to light your house because you can't run your laser scanner on the barcode and, you know, nobody knows how to count cash without the machine. So it, it, it was uh, really amazing. We got back, I got back to my house. I actually walked from, from, uh, where I work and it was, uh, you know, about an hour and a half walk. And uh, some of my neighbors had come from basically the same place and it took them two hours by car. And then, you know, everybody pulled out their ice cream to have a block party because ice cream was just going to melt. And so let's, let's go ahead and eat it. And meanwhile, I had this refrigerator that was doing just fine. And I had, you know, lights that were doing just fine because I've got batteries and I'm off grid, at least, you know, Half of my house is off-grid and the other half is still in the grid. So it's this hybrid system that I kind of built up myself. But, you know, you feel this great sort of sense of independence and you're less vulnerable really to to whatever happens in society because you not only do you, through all the data and all the kind of tracking what you do and reduction, you realize that you don't need that much. That's part of it. And so when services are disrupted or or curtailed or something unavailable you realize that no i can i can deal with that that's okay and it's not as psychologically jarring if you've kind of adopted a mentality that you know is you should not just depend on what our world gives us i'm reading that the the doing the math i think a lot of people i, I don't know what it's like for most people i think they're scared of math but i think that it's actually, it, the focus is, the math is a means to an end, or it, it, it's liberating. Like once you get the math, if you don't do the math, then it's all nebulous, you're not sure, and maybe I should do this, and maybe I shouldn't do that. But once you do the math, you realize what works and what doesn't work, and then you do what works, and you don't, it's, and likewise with the, with the experimentation and the lowering, the, the reducing consumption, or finding out what, how little you need, it also feels liberating. It's not work for you to, to use less, it feels like, oh, I don't need that. I'll do without. And I guess yeah. in the history, there's always like people throughout time saying, wealth is not how much you have, it's how little you need. And in that sense, you're making yourself wealthier. Yeah, it does feel like that. And, and I would say that there are two things to, to point out. One, it's not really sufficient to give people a list of here are things you should cut out because now you're bossing them. People mm-hmm. don't like to be bossed. If you give them the tools to be able to assess what they're doing and let them figure out what to cut out. Now they have ownership. Now they have, you know, agency in the whole business and they, they enjoy it. It's, I think what you've experienced is what I've experienced. And so that's, that's point number one is, is you, you've got to, you know, give people tools to at least uh, understand and, and evaluate. And, uh, you know, there's some, I have some suggestions, uh, that we can get to, but, you know, the other thing to point out is it's counterproductive to be a purist on this stuff. And a, a very good example, I think, is that I recognize that our food industry is kind of crazy in terms of how many calories of energy are put into delivering one calorie of food to a plate that we're going to eat. It's a 10 to 1 ratio in uh, many cases. And a lot of that's driven by our meat consumption, where you know beef might be a factor of 5 to 10 higher energy cost per nutritional you know value than grains or 
or vegetables and, and, and things of this nature. So if say half of your calories are coming from, from meat and the other half from vegetable matter, then you've got something like a, you know, let's call it four times uh, energy sort of footprint compared to if you're strictly uh, non-meat eater. So you could say, oh my gosh, then, then the clear answer is I should just not eat meat. And you could bring that factor of four down to a factor of one. That's a huge reduction in your energy footprint. But then if you're strict about it, it makes your life, I think, somewhat less fun. So if part of your tradition is to have, you know, turkey at Thanksgiving, well, you, you should still do that. If you go to a friend's house and they've made lamb, go ahead and eat it. You know, it's tasty. You'll like it. And it's not really making a huge dent if it's occasional. You know, if the occasional slice of pizza has a few, you know, shreds of, of uh, ham on it or something, you shouldn't turn your nose up at it and say, well, I, that's, that's against my principles. I can't eat it. You should be careful about saying you shouldn't do this. But my philosophy is just relax. You know, um, as long as quantitatively, and this is where the math comes in, if 95% of your meals don't have meat, then you've taken that four times down to 1.2 times. Mm -hmm. And is going from 1.2 to 1.0 when you've already come from four to 1.2, is that worth, you know, the inconveniences or the deprivation, uh, you know, complete deprivation for, for a lifetime? I say no, just just uh, relax. But the quantitative approach allows you, in my mind, to, to do that because I realize that if you cut out 95%, you, you've basically done the job and you shouldn't fret the small stuff. Yeah. At the end, the quantitative approach makes that possible. I read in the New York Times an article that was saying about how to reduce your energy use while, while traveling. And they were saying, you know, close the laptop lid when you're not using it. And he kind of took away like, oh, if I close a laptop lid, then an extra flight isn't that big of a deal. <laughs> and that's not based on the numbers. Not even close. One and 1.2, that's it. It's like pennywise and pound foolish, but like pennywise and like something a lot bigger than the pound. Yeah, tons foolish. Yeah, that, that's absolutely, you're, you're right. And that's why I love your blog so much. And like, I have no problem if anyone's listening to us right now and just turns it off and goes to do the math at USCD, ucsd.edu. It's... You stopped writing it like something like, I guess you've had a couple of posts in the past year or two, but the bulk of it was a few years ago. I still mm -hmm. go back to it all the time, partly because of the graph that you described of the up and down of the fossil fuel, the energy matrix, which ought to be pasted on most government buildings in Washington, D.C. so that they know what works and what doesn't work. The energy trap, there's all these other, and you talk about your energy use. I, I love that you plot the energy use and when you start measuring it, it just drops. Yes. And you didn't drop it to make your life worse. You made your life better. And as a result, if I'm, stop me if I'm, if I'm misstating it, but I, I imagine like now that I have the numbers, you, this is, I imagine you're like, now that I have the numbers, I know what I can do. You cut things out, but you're not cutting out things you like. You're cutting out the fat. And then like a visitor visits and like it spikes again. Yeah, that's right. And they just haven't gone through the process. Yeah. And so they're just like a bull in a china shop, I guess, just like, oh, whatever, I'll just turn this on, turn this. Right. I did a sabbatical quarter away from uh, San Diego. We had a house sitter for three months and the energy use went up by, you know, five times or something like this for one person instead of two people. You know, one person used five times as much energy as the two of, of, of us normally do. And 
uh, it was stunning because that tells you right away, it's not the house, it's not the insulation, it's not, you know, the characteristics of, you know, does it have gas heat, does it have, you know, it's the person, it's the habits, it's the expectations. And it's also, that's the low-hanging fruit. It's also not the standard of living because the guest was presumably no happier than you. And because a lot of people, I think, associate, like so many people say, how are we going to get third world nation, when Africa moves up to our standard of living, how are we going to handle that they're all using energy like we are? I'm like, why are we using so much? Like, Why are we the target, right? Why are we the, the goal? And why can't, they can have our standard of living without our energy use because I read somewhere, I think it was in, in Low Tech Magazine, that someone did a study of Germany, they could drop like 75% of their energy use maintaining the same standard of living. And Germany has presumably dropped more than most of us, which tells me if the numbers, if I'm remembering the numbers right, we could probably drop like 85, 90% of our energy use, most of us, with, and probably improve our standard of living. Because that's a, your blog is about math, but I feel like your life, it, it enables a life of, of more joy and fun and connecting with people and things like that. And there's a, there's a lot of people like that, because like, it's like the limits to growth people, low-tech guy, low-tech magazine people, that it's, it ultimately liberates you, understanding what's going on, the science and the math behind it, ultimately liberates you to enjoy your life more. That's what I feel like. Yeah. And what I don't know is how universal is that? That's, that was my reaction. That's your reaction. You know, there's a reward in, in taking stock of your situation and doing something about it and being in control. Now, it's not for everybody in the sense that, you know, one thing we do in San Diego is we tend not to heat our house. And a lot of people in the, you know, other parts of the country and world will say, big deal. You're in San Diego. I'd die to be in San Diego. You don't have any problems. But I can almost guarantee that my house is colder than their house is right now. Okay. So there, you know, it, it gets down to 55 degrees. That's about 12 C in our house on the sort of coldest episodes. And that's chilly. Not everybody would be willing to deal with that. My attitude is at some level, toughen up people. You know, we've, we did not always have central heat and air. You know, we, we evolved as a species and we've, guess what? We've had seasons before we handle it. You know, this is not like a new experience. So, you know what, in the winter, you can wear more clothes. You can have a blanket on the couch for when you're watching TV. The goal really is to keep yourself warm. If I look at my bookcase and I look at the books on my bookcase, why do I care what the temperature of those books are? Why am I spending energy to heat all of my furniture, all of my walls? I don't care what the temperature of those things are. I want to feel warm. And, you know, there are simple low-tech ways to do that. And you don't have to have your whole house really, you know, blazing. And not just low-tech, but, I mean, comfortable. And a friend of mine, one of the things I do on this, on this podcast is I ask people to act on their values to do something that they weren't already doing. And most of the time, people haven't really thought of it. But a friend of mine listens to my blog, uh, to the podcast, and contacted me and said, I really want to do this. I'm ready to do it. And I was like, oh, I didn't know you're thinking about it. So his commitment was for this, for, he's a principal of a, of a school. And he says he's going to ride his bike to school every day for the 2018-2019 school year. So that's pretty cool, right? What I didn't mention is he lives in Alaska. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and he just wrote me that it's, he's been riding his bike to school in minus 40 degree weather. Oh my gosh. And he's not like, oh, poor me. He's just, yeah, whatever. I mean, I presume it's a matter of clothing, mostly. 
we both know that minus 40 is like, it doesn't matter which one. Cause that's the, right. Yeah. That's a beautiful crossing point. Yep. And then when I'm in Europe, it's like, you see like these 80 year old people riding their bikes in the rain and you're like, it's not a big deal. Like there's a mindset shift that happens or the shift can happen. Or maybe if you grow up there, you don't think of, of it, but you say toughen up, but it's also after you get used to it, it's not a matter of toughen, toughening. It's just a matter of, yeah. So I'm riding my bike to school, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. And, and, you know, I can imagine that there are elements of that experience, biking in such cold weather, that might be unpleasant. But at some point, when you realize that you can do it, that it's not going to kill you, you're going to survive, you're actually going to feel better about yourself for meeting a challenge and overcoming, you know, some of the curveballs that, that nature will throw you. You know, it, I, think, I think you come out feeling just much better about yourself and more resilient and sort of a come what may, I'm going to be all right. If I can do this, what can happen that's going to throw me off? And if, if we've grown up to be princesses and we all have to have, you know, things just so, I don't envy that person's sort of experience when things don't go well. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they're going to be running around like, uh, you know, crazed chickens, right? And just not know quite what to do or how to handle, you know, some some uh, major inconvenience. And I think the people who have taken control of their lives are just going to kind of roll with things a lot better and keep their heads and be able to follow opportunities as they come and, and just uh, not whine. I'm curious, how did it get started? Do you know, do you remember the first couple? calculations you started doing because some of them get pretty some of them get a little more elaborate and complex Mm -hmm. i mean the energy trap is that could not have been an early one that was not that was a recognition sort of partway through the process and i think that's also a really important concept so let me just explain that really quickly which is that can we work up to that one and start with like okay sure sure what are some of the early ones well so i'm certainly fond of solar and understand you know, that, that's sort of closer to my background as a physicist and astrophysicist is understanding, you know, solar flux and photons and energy and, and the conversion, how that happens in, say, the photovoltaic panel, the, the um, processes in the semiconductor. And so, you know, I think my, my first start was, was kind of, okay, what fraction of the Earth's area would we need to cover, cover in solar panels to, to cover our needs? And at first you think, all right, that's pretty good. Like, I can draw that on a map and it's not, overwhelming you know it's the size of one state in the union yeah that's right that's right so you know that that seems doable and tolerable but then you know part of being i think a a scientist is to use uh numbers and quantitative uh, analysis to put things in perspective to make some you know to make it put things in context so that you can understand them because big numbers are just hard to understand Mm -hmm. how do you comprehend so either putting it on a personal scale. So, okay, so it's not so much land area, but what fraction would I own, you know, would be attributed to me? Like how big is that? And now you can compare that to the size of your house or roof or yard or uh, just, you know, putting that in perspective and realizing that, okay, that's not insignificant. Then you can also do things like, okay, how much pavement exists in the U.S.? And so you can you know, this is part of, of uh, being, uh, I think, skillful at estimating and, and uh, tackling a question like that. It's kind of a Fermi problem, they're called. And realizing, that, okay, it's actually kind of comparable to the amount of pavement in the U.S. And that's a little bit troubling because there's a lot of pavement. Mm-hmm. And pavement is 
kind of glorified dirt. It's really cheap. So can we really put a pavement's worth of high-tech photovoltaic panels it took a long across time the country? To build up all those roads, centuries. Exactly. Yeah. And, and if, you've, if you've driven across the country, it's almost my, it's mind-boggling. Just one freeway crossing the country, how much pavement that is. Days and days and days, endless pavement. And that's just one, one of the freeways. So yeah, it's really, it's stunning. And even then, if you have, so let's say we did get all that solar. Well, you can't just put it all in one place because now you're going to lose it off in the transmission. But also it doesn't really, it doesn't do some things very well. If you have electric cars, okay, you're going to get some transportation that way. If you want to melt steel to build things, I don't know if photo is going to help very much. Also fuels do that great. Yeah, I mean, you can do almost anything with electricity. It's just that you might suffer efficiency, right? If what you want to do is heat something, well, I guess, you know, you can convert electricity to heat at basically 100% efficiency. But that's why things like coal and natural gas are, are great for industry because it's, it's just a, a direct conversion to heat. So you get 100% of that resource in, in the form that you want. Whereas a photovoltaic panel at 15 to 20%, and then turning that to heat, it's a little bit weak tea compared to the, the fossil fuel. And people don't get that. So then what's another early one? And then I want to get to some of the later ones too. Yeah. So I think, I think I, I try to hit the obvious things, you know, okay, what about wind? The things that you hear a lot about and so, and hydroelectricity. So I think, you know, it started with the obvious well-trodden uh, targets. And one thing I think is relevant and important to realize is that you know, the Earth system is really primarily uh, fueled by the sun. So sunlight comes in and it, it uh, creates the winds. So the wind, for instance, is a derivative product of the sun. Hydroelectricity is a derivative product of the sun. So the sun driving the evaporation cycle and rain and then, you know, catching that in reservoirs. So all of those things are just from the outset going to be subpar compared to directly harnessing solar input. So that's one thing to keep in mind is that whenever you hear about, uh, you know, wind or hydroelectric, a lot of other uh, biofuels, you know, this, this is a secondary solar process. So it, it certainly could not be expected to scale as well as, as solar direct. So I did a lot of those calculations. Planting corn to turn into biofuels, you do, you'd probably be more effective to put solar cells there and not go through the middle step of corn and then refining the ethanol out. Yeah. But of course, then once you do that, you, you can't use that area for making corn anymore because right. building solar cells there. Right. So, I mean, and one thing that, that was another early one is corn ethanol is a big uh, sort of political football in our, in our politics in the U.S. How much land would we need to grow the corn that we would need to be energy independent? And even if you give it a, a positive energy return on energy invested, which is uh, questionable, it's, it's almost, you know, it's, it's uh, painfully close to break even, but it, it's more than the arable land that we have in the U.S. So that, that's, an, that's the kind of calculation I wanted to, to pursue is, is this, why are we talking about this? Is it even viable? Can, can it do the job? And, you know, when it comes to biofuels, one thing to recognize is that photosynthesis at its best, an algae pond might get five or 6% of the incoming solar light converted into, you know, biomass. And, you know, when you compare that to a 15 to 20% solar panel, you know, some people turn their noses up at that, 
number. It seems like low, but that's an uninformed response. It's actually quite respectable uh, compared to, say, what nature has uh, worked out over time. The downside there is, and it's uh, it's not fair comparing those numbers directly because the biofuels can give you some chemical energy that's basically built-in storage. So solar, that that to me is, is still the holy grail. So if I have one kind of uh, almost fetish for what I think could be a game changer, it would be solar energy into liquid fuels. That's, you know, some efficient, scalable process to do that. Are there and, any such efficient liquids that can store that energy? Well, I mean, gasoline is is the target, something like that. To make gasoline out of component parts using solar power. Yeah, that's the dream, right? Is to We've got this abundant solar energy. The problem is that it's intermittent and storage is difficult and batteries certainly can't be relied on to do seasonal storage. You might do short-term storage and, you know, day-night kinds of things or even weekly. But, you know, a gallon of gas will last years and years. Well, you know, hydrocarbon will last millions of years in, in the right yeah. uh, environment underground. That's great storage. That's, that's like perfect. The energy density is, is uh, phenomenal. So if, if you could connect the wonders of solar input to the uh, kind of miracle of uh, convenience and energy density of the f- liquid fossil fuels, then that, that's a game changer. I, it shifts. Okay, let me just say one thing. This is not like, okay, we fixed our problems. That's we fixed one problem mm-hmm. uh, out of the 20 that we, we are facing in this unprecedented time as we put pressures on our planet that have never... Because that doesn't solve... Humans are taking up a lot of space. There were extinctions and, and rainforests and depletions of resources. So That's right. That. It doesn't do water or fisheries or agriculture, arable land, desertification, uh, phosphor cycle. Climate change is another one of those. So we're not short on uh, global scale problems that will have a difficult time surviving this onslaught of, of population that we've now, you know, we're running this giant unauthorized experiment on the planet earth. Hey, let's see what happens if we put 7 billion plus on the planet. Do you think it'll work? I, I don't know. Let's just try it. And I feel like almost every solution, every problem can, up until now, virtually every problem can be solved with using more energy and energy can always use fossil. As long as you have fossil fuels, it can always use, do that. But once ultimately then you, you, you run out of the ability. If, if that runs out, then you can't just, there's some things that are really fundamental. I feel like that's a physicist perspective because conservation of energy is so, so fundamental. I feel like another big, are there people doing research into figuring out if they can make gasoline out of, I don't know what yeah, they're Absolutely. There's a, a large effort that's sort of um, partnered between Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory and Caltech uh, called the Joint Center for um, Artificial Photosynthesis. And, you know, their approach is really interesting. And I haven't, I haven't actually updated myself on what's been happening in the last couple of years in, in this project. But, but basically, their idea was, let's start with the 20 most common elements. And I'm, I might be getting some of the details slightly wrong, but something like the 20 most common elements, because we need something to be scalable, it needs to be cheap, we can't need platinum, you know, to make this, this work. So let's start with, with common things and see if we can come up with combinations of compounds from these elements that have the right sort of catalytic properties that can um, allow sort of uh, uh, liquid fuel production from uh, from sunlight. And so, you know, they can do this with platinum and with some other uh, materials. The way it was put to me is that 
if you have three, you have three things that you need it to be able to do. You need it to be cheap, efficient, and robust. And you can right now accomplish any two of those at once, mm-hmm. but not all three. And, and like so engineering thing ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a tough problem. So the way they were approaching it was really neat. They were, they were basically doing this massive onslaught uh, kind of combinatorial uh, approach where they would make an LCD screen effectively with millions of pixels in each pixel had a little bit of a different compound and they could address it each pixel the way that you would address an LCD screen address meaning you know uh, access the, that location and basically do a sweep put this thing in sunlight and do a sweep and see how much photo current was being generated from each pixel well, and so like Thomas Edison with the light bulbs <laughs> like I tried yeah, on a huge scale yeah and and so it's kind of my kind of uh, semi humorous way to look at it is you know the the periodic table is finite it fits on a single piece of paper which is kind of astonishing. All those, you know, we, we only have uh, a, a few dozen different um, elements to choose from. And there's so many, com- only so many combinations you can make. And we've explored a lot of them. So this effort is basically taking the periodic table, turning it upside down and holding it by the ankles and shaking it and seeing if any loose change falls out that we haven't <laughs> found before. And it's something you absolutely should do. You know, like this is, I applaud their approach. I think it's the right approach it's not guaranteed to produce results. Mm-hmm. We've been pretty clever at finding a lot of the, you know, the, the combinations of elements that do interesting things. You know, H2O is a great one, by the way. And yeah. uh, we're unlikely to, to improve on that for a, a lot of uh, purposes. Another solution that we could dream of is carbon sequestration because we got a lot of CO2 in the, I guess I should say CO2 sequestration. And, oh, I emailed you a long time ago about carbon offsets for flying. Which, oh, that's right. As far as I know, it doesn't work. And it's decreasing something that would have increased it more is not the same as decreasing. If you put some money in and it stops someone from putting a little bit more than they would have, that's still decreased. It's, it's, it's only decreasing the amount of increase. I'm that's not right. aware of any way short of planting trees to get CO2 out of the air. And planting trees only replaces the trees have cut down. And it doesn't seem to match the the volume that's in there now not to mention methane and so forth i know that there's some research into getting some rocks that'll that co2 get into combining with rocks have you done a post on sequestration i did a post on sequestration some time ago and i remember the result being that you know there was one particular technology i was evaluating to see it penciled out and you know in terms of strict sort of energy terms and, and viability that particular effort to get CO2 out of the atmosphere seemed reasonable. But, you know, the, the practical problems become where do you put it and what form? If it's gas, it's difficult because, you know, part of the idea well, is maybe... CO2 you could, after you've ca- captured it. Right. You could okay. put that maybe into um, natural gas wells that are, are spent and just, you know, these underground features that have held gas for, for, you know, lots of time, you know, millions of years maybe those are good places to to shove these uh, uh, gases. But that's, I think, a difficult prospect. And I think those things can be actually leaky once they've been, you know, accessed for, you know, the natural gas has been pulled out. You get this sort of drill hole pipeline. And I don't know the details of this, but, uh, you know, it's one of those things that strikes me is that that's a little hard. The other thing you could do is make solid matter that you dump into the ocean and it goes, you know, down deep into the ocean floor and, basically not seen or heard from again for 
the timescales we care about. Mm-hmm. So there are things that you can do like this, but compared to just simply cutting down on our fossil fuel use, mm-hmm. you know, that's where the big gains can be had, at least in slowing the, the progress. And then everything about the problem becomes easier if you take that forcing away. And I feel like businesses, business people ought to get that most because if you want to become more profitable, cutting costs is almost always more effective than raising the, the revenues. It's difficult, but it's, it works. Actually, there's, man, you're going to love to, the uh, low-tech magazine because he talks about, there's one he did recently on, on energy security, which the definition of that is kind of hard to figure out. But if you want to make sure that your energy supply never drop, or has, if you want 99.99%, like you only want to have an hour, you, will, you never want to lose more than an hour a year. The costs like shoot up incredibly. And if you're willing to have it, maybe the power goes down once a, a day over the course of a year. The costs drop a lot, but nothing works like just reducing the amount of power you need. It's like night and day, the, the difference in the effort. And to keep trying to get to higher and higher percentages of working, you become less and less secure because your needs, you start having to devote more and more of your economy over to it. And mm-hmm. then you know, immediately people, once they have it, they start using more and you become less and less secure. And if you just, if just everyone could go for, if everyone lived a life where one, they didn't need that much. And two, when the power goes down, they're fine for a while. Just don't do your laundry that day. Uh, I've oversimplified. It becomes, you become a much more secure nation if energy security is what you, what you want to look at. And in general, lowering consumption, it's just incomparably more effective. That's right. And that, that's something I, I personally found, uh, you know, is, is the one place where I can, I can mentally go and, and feel like, okay, there is a solution to our, our massive problems. It's not one that's easy to sell, but yes, if we all reduced our, our footprint by a factor of two to four, five, as I feel I've done in my life, not feel, but I've measured. And that takes enormous pressure off of our system. And now a lot of the problems become tractable. So it's, it's a funny thing that the do the math blog, I do all this evaluation under the assumption that we're going to try to keep our present energy use rate or even even grow and show that, man, it's really hard. It's just hard. But as soon as you drop it down to four times less, okay, now there are things that we can do. And the problem just becomes easy easier. It's not an easy uh, thing. But so the question is, how do you get people to accept that that's the right solution? And I'm skeptical that our values as a society can change without a crisis being the precipitator. And it would have to be a pretty serious crisis. And there's a lot of damage that comes out of a crisis. So yes, on paper, it can, we would be much better off if everybody just cut way back as I have myself and you have. I just don't know how to get there. That's what this podcast is about. And that's like, that's what my life's work is becoming. Mm -hmm. Largely because when I've made these changes, it, it's not necessarily the case that if you reduce your consumption, that your life will be better by your own standards. But what I found is that it's, it's not only better, but it's like a lot better in a way that I never would have anticipated or predicted. And what I'm sharing is not deprivation and sacrifice. It might look like that from the outside, but what I'm trying to share is joy and fun and connecting with people more and, and living by my values more. Mm-hmm. Now that alone, if you simply tell people that it won't, People are like, okay, great. Well, I like my life too. And good for you. 
you, you live a great life, I'll live a great life. And, they're, and they kind of stay that way. I want to get to that in a second, but I still want to go back to a couple. There's like, the, what happens if, if we keep growing? That's one of the more bigger ones. And the, and the energy trap, because both of those are, they stick with me really well. And I think they, they inform a lot. And I hope you, if you, I hope you don't, I hope you don't mind sharing about those two. Sure. So first of all, the inaugural, the first post I did for the Do The Math blog was just exactly this problem of how much physical growth can we take? And I looked at just energy uh, over the fat past uh, few hundred years, uh, three or 400 years, we've been on essentially an exponential uh, rise at maybe 3% per year. And so if you do the mathematically convenient move of knocking that down to 2.3% per year, that gives you this nice feature that every century, it's a factor of 10. So if we increase our energy use by a factor of 10 every century, what are we looking at? And in 400 years from now, we would use all the sunlight that hits the earth. And then in, I think it's... Uh, sorry, you said 400 yeah. years. Yeah, in so 400 years. years ago, it would be 1600. So yeah. it's a renaissance, not that long ago. I mean... Right. We can, we can still understand English from that time, for instance, right? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, that's Shakespearean. And, long, long time. Yeah. That's right. as long as they've been up now. I mean, they're, they're like 4,000 years. So it's 10% of the time since the, since the ancient, since ancient Egypt. Right. It's modern. Very okay. Right. So we go that far ahead. Now right. we have to use every bit of solar energy that hits the planet. At 100% efficiency, which, you know, thermodynamically and physically you're not going to do. So and there's clouds reflecting stuff and all sorts of other, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is sort of upper limit. This is absurd, the absurd level. So then you say, well, no problem because I'm a space cadet and I think we can build, you know, a Dyson sphere and catch all the light from the sun that's not just hitting the earth, but everything that's coming out. So that gets you to 1100 years. So to get everything coming out of the sun. So we're just using every bit of energy that's coming out of the sun. At 100% efficiency somehow. So 1,100 years, so we're not even halfway to when this is the year zero. We're barely over halfway to the year zero. Yeah, that's right. So that's daunting. But, you know, the the true space cadet will say, yeah, but our sun's not the only uh, star in the galaxy. There are 100 billion stars in the galaxy. So that would seem to to make your your life, uh, you know, infinitely uh, better. You could go forever. But no, you can go another, uh, sorry, I said it wrong, was 1,400 years to get to uh, the solar, all the solar output, then it's another 1,100 years to get the entire galaxy. So add those, that's 2,500 years from now. At this rate, or at 2.3% growth per year in energy, that's the galaxy, the entire galaxy, in a civilization-relevant timescale. And I should very quickly point out that in no way do I think this is a serious calculation. This is Um, an upper limit. It's not only is it an upper limit, it's absurd from the very beginning. And it's got a lot of problems. You know, for instance, you know, to do that, that would assume that we're, we're also growing population so that the demands on, on energy uh, keep scaling up because that's been happening. That's been part of the last three or 400 years of energy growth. It's just also more people. It's, it's more, it, it's been growing faster than population, meaning that we use more per capita but you have both things growing. And so I was surprised sometimes by the reaction to this post because some people thought I was seriously proposing that this was a reasonable calculation. It's not. It's only to point out that 
yes, you can imagine all kinds of things that would limit us and not allow us to do this, this trajectory. But that's exactly the point. We are not going to continue a growth trajectory on energy indefinitely. And so then I turn it to, let's just stick our focus to the earth and say that we're, we're um, producing energy on the earth. And I can even tell you that I don't care what form that's in. I don't care if it's a new form that we don't even have a name for yet or some you know uh, quantum fluctuation of the vacuum zero state or whatever. Like just make up some malarkey and whatever energy technology you can imagine producing, if we keep growing at the rate we have been, and if I think I, I, I keep the 2.3% per year, there's waste heat from that production. And if you're on the surface of the earth, the only way that we can get that waste heat off the earth ultimately is radiation. That's how we you know, thermodynamically connect to space. And so in something like, again, it's 400 years, the surface of the planet would be as hot as boiling water, 100 degrees C. And in something like a thousand years, we would be as hot as the surface of the sun on the earth if we were really continuing this energy trajectory by whatever physics you you want to concoct for our energy production. So really what this says is that there are thermodynamic limits, physics limits on how much we can expect to see energy growth on this planet. And obviously, it's already absurd by 400 years, you're boiling water. So we're not going to get to that. And that's just saying that over the course of just a few hundred years, we run into real physical problems, and therefore will not continue to grow our energy production on a few centuries timescale. So these cartoonishly accepting ways of like saying, if we could do all these things, you'd think it would give you a lot longer than a few human times, a few human lifetimes. And yet, yeah. even when you just allow everything possible beyond anything reasonable, it's still only a few human lifetimes. It's shorter than the, the growth period that we've, we've seen so far. And that's very, it's very simple. I mean, it's just like, it, we can't keep doing this. And then, so you had this conversation with an economist about this. Right. Who's named on the, podcast, on the blog. Right. And by the way, I'll, I'll point out that some people thought that this was a, a fictitious conversation, and I can assure you it was not. In fact, at one point, I had this economist willing to write a joint article for Scientific American where we had our back and forth uh, conversation on that forum, and eventually he backed out. So um, This is a prominent someone, like a name people would recognize? Yeah. At least at an institution people would recognize? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And so, so it was unfortunate, but, uh, but yeah, there was this conversation at a dinner table with an economist where I sort of put this idea of the end of growth because the, the next part of the story is if you're going to stop growing physical resources, energy and other extractive, you know, physical resources, my claim is that economic growth also has to end. And this is something that there's a logical sequence to get from one, one, you know, that, that you say claim now, but I think more of a conclusion because you have to keep, if you want to heat your egg in the morning or not freeze to death, you, you need some energy component of your life. That's right. So, and so the economists would say, yeah, but then that becomes 
increasingly unimportant in terms of, you know, there are, we have growth in other sectors that are not physical. And the fact that you can point to some, some activities, economic activities that are absolutely real and happen today that have almost zero energy input, like let's say trading fine art, that's, or, you know, uh, historically important art that that energy has been spent. You've just got some canvas with some oil on it. And, you know, you can do millions of dollars of financial transactions to move this ownership of this thing around. And it basically costs no energy. And so there's this fallacy to, to think that if you can point to some examples where that works to go from there to say, that means that we can move uh, decouple, you know, our economic activity from physical uh, resources because look at this example. But at the end of the day, we do have physical needs. We need to grow our food and and eat and move things around and um, heat our food, heat ourselves. We will have a physical component. If that were to become a negligible part of the economy, because all these other sectors have just you know left it in the dust, is the economist view. That would mean that it's basically free. It's it's a the weird thing. For something that's finite and limited, it's like they don't understand supply and demand all of a sudden, right? (laughs) That will not be free. So there will be a threshold. And if you, you, even in the best of circumstances, when we don't go down in our consumption, but we are able to sort of maintain a steady level of energy expenditure, it will be a finite part of the economy. And therefore, if it's capped, and the fraction of the economy that it represents is capped. The economy is capped. So growth is a phase. And just because it's lasted for generations doesn't mean it's a physical principle. Economists really like to sort of borrow from kind of the physical sciences and have, you know, these principles that are their foundations. But a lot of those foundations are temporary. And so the entire structure makes great sense right now. And there's, you know, they're they're fantastically successful at understanding uh, a lot of the elements of our economy right now, but it's going to be, you know, not worth a whole lot in the fullness of time. In a short time. How about the energy trap? I want to keep going on all the, but the energy trap is actually one that I've, I've read that one many times and it, it, I haven't done the math on it myself. Okay. So say we want to start transitioning from so say so there's some politician and right now, I don't think anyone gets elected on saying, let's use less energy or let's convert some of the energy that we're putting into industry and put that into R&D. Uh, but let's say we had one. So it's not so easy to just yeah. say we're going to use, we can t- take some of our energy, some of our D. De- so if, if we're on the downslope, you, you can explain this better than I can. Okay. So let me first start by saying that, you know, to connect to the previous point that growth is a temporary phase. And it's destructive, in my opinion. The sooner we realize that it's not the right trajectory and get off of it, the better off we are. If we can aim for a more steady state, you know, to save ourselves a decline, or maybe you know, go for steady state, and then as as you uh, you know, as the world allows, maybe you could grow that steady state value from there. But it's kind of like building a helicopter that can hover, and maybe you decide, okay, we can actually hover a little bit higher, but let's get the helicopter capability first. So when a politician calls or their campaign calls me uh, during election season, one of the first things I can say is, does your candidate support growth? Oh, absolutely. Yes, my candidate is really fond of growth. I say, okay, well, that's my number one issue. I really don't support growth and I can't get behind your candidate if that's something they care about. They hang up on me. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a great way to get rid of a, a collar, but it, it also points out the prevalence of the growth mentality um, in our economy and our resources, and it's destructive. So I, I think we need to get away from it. The energy trap is the acknowledgement that if we are to accomplish a large-scale transition away from our current fossil fuel-based infrastructure, where you know 85% of our energy is uh, coming from fossil fuels or something in that neighborhood, then it's going to take a, a giant investment of capital and energy to bring that about. You know, if you can imagine a U.S. pavement's worth of photovoltaic panels, or uh, you know, wind turbines everywhere you look, or you know, whatever the technology is, it's it's a big investment of real physical goods, and it takes energy to produce those goods. So if you react to a decline in available energy because, you know, we hit peak oil or, you know, political instabilities or whatever is is decreasing the amount of energy available year by year. And only then do you react and say, oh gosh, I guess we do need that new energy infrastructure. And let's assume that we could even decide what that should be and collectively have a consensus on where we should go. And you start to build that energy infrastructure. It's going to take energy and pull a resource away from people that's already in short supply. So that's difficult. That's politically difficult. And it's a long-term prospect. You're looking at, you know, decades to build out this infrastructure. So, you know, that's longer than the political cycles. And that makes it very vulnerable to some other politician coming in and saying, oh, you know, are you tired of this, you know, rationing? Would you like to have your life back? Uh, Just like me, I'll get rid of this program. You know, you're going to be better off. Presumably, at this point, there hasn't been any big crisis. If we, if this is all foresight, so that politician could also say they don't even know what they're talking about because I haven't had any problem. Yeah, yeah. That's, so it's this foresight of like people agreeing that okay, so that's major. This is like that, gets, lots of ifs. that gets into personality types, which is another fascinating thing we might want to touch on. But the energy trap, I think, is really important because you know we're used to doing big projects. But we think of it economically and we think of it, you know, from a financial point of view that you can borrow money uh, to build some big project. And over the, you know, the following decade, you're going to make enough money to pay back that, that loan. But nature doesn't work like that. You can't finance energy. So it's got to come up, you know, come off the top. So I, I do think this energy trap is, is, uh, uh, something to be concerned about. The, the flaw in thinking about the energy trap is thinking of energy as monolithic, that it's all one one category. Whereas we have different forms of energy. We have coal and natural gas and, and uh, petroleum. And so, you know, petroleum might get hit hard. And if you need petroleum to build your infrastructure uh, to replace petroleum, then you're in trouble. But if you can do that with natural gas and coal, you could sort of sidestep the problem somewhat. But I think just in broad brush, it should still be a concern that if we have energy or just, you know, fill in your blank resource, if you've got resource limitations and you realize suddenly you have resource limitations and you need to get out of that situation, it's going to take resources to get out of it. And that's what you're limited on at the time. And so I think generically, this becomes uh, a somewhat thorny and sticky problem. If reducing energy requires energy and your energy is going down, then pulling energy from where it's being used to where you want to, you, you, you have to pull it out fast. And in a situation that no one's ever done that before, and you don't even know if it's really necessary because 
maybe the projections were off and we think we're going to lose it over the course of, we think it's decreasing like say 2% per year, but maybe it's only decreasing 1% per year. We could use that. And then it's always easier to get back out of the trap or to get back out of that cycle. And then you're trapped. Right. It's on the one hand subtle, but on the other hand, compelling. That's how I found it. And, and one of the greatest inventions of our, our, our human uh, experiment at some level, uh, well, the greatest, I would say, has been science. That's my own personal view. But then the next thing might be democracy. And, you know, you could argue about the, the order that you want to put those in. But democracy, as wonderful as it has been, is particularly challenged when it comes to responding to these kinds of crises. Because if it's a question of voting to impose additional limits on yourself, and to have less rather than, you know, voting for the guy who promises more. That's difficult. So I think we've got this, the situation where democracies have worked exceptionally well in situations and, and, uh, in our, in our climate in which more, we have more available each year in the growth phase. Democracies work incredibly well because people can guide their politicians to maximize their growth. If the whole scenario flips around and now it's a decline scenario, democracy is not so well suited to guide us sort of gracefully through that phase. It always wants to go the other way. People want more for themselves. And so the pressures are against the, the current. When it's with the current, wow, we do great things. I'm not aware of any other system that works any better either. Because if you start looking at authoritarian, the authoritarian, and there's a calculation, certainly people my age and older do, which is you hear, well, there's going to be more plastic in the ocean than fish by 2050, right? I was born in 71, so I'll be about 80. That's a big problem for someone else, Mm -hmm. not me. And if you're a dictator or you have a small number of people making these choices, presumably they're not the poor people. And then you have people who are like, that's a problem for someone but not me. Mm -hmm. And I do sometimes wonder, and this is just idle musing, okay? So it's not something I'm an expert on. I don't really study it. But we see this rise of somewhat authoritarian regimes, a lot of sort of right-wing extremism across Europe. And and I wonder if some of that is connected to just this, this subtle sense that things are changing, things are different. One thing I do recognize is that as as fond as I am of the tolerance that we've built up in our society toward those who are different, that's a a fantastic thing that I would love to see improve. Tolerance is a function of having needs met. So if it becomes more of a, a skirmish for resources, those who are different will not be tolerated. If you're fighting fighting for your survival at some level or for just what you what you want or need to survive and you perceive that some other group is trying to share that pie mm-hmm. any label any attribute that can separate one group from another becomes a wedge and i worry that that this is kind of where we would head if we don't handle this transition gracefully and this and we might be seeing the sort of fuzzy edge of this process now because people sense that it's a more hard scrabble than it used to be. I mean, there's this sense that you know, if you ask young people, 
will your life be as rich as your parents? And it's for the first time in history sort of turned around. So I, maybe it's not an accident that we're seeing shifts in our you know political leanings uh, in a way that just defies our preconceived notion of where things were heading. A lot of people have described Syria, the situation in Syria as arising from conflicts over dwindling resources. And that could just, that type of conflict could explain, expand globally. Yeah. My scenario, the, the sort of thing that I imagine, and this is again, just total speculation, but, but it's a, it's a plausible sounding scenario, which is that oil, you know, let's say it's, it's cheap now, but that's not a forever situation. And it edges up to, you know, hundred dollars a barrel and, and, you know, the oil exporting countries are, are happy with that. Their economy is humming along. And then as oil becomes more difficult to produce, let's say it edges up slowly to $200 a barrel. And some country says, you know what, this is great, but our economy works just fine at $100 a barrel. And this is obviously a precious and dwindling resource. Let's sell half as much of it for $200 a barrel. Then our income is the same. Now you've just taken oil off the market and the price spikes up more. It's at 300. Some country says, oh, you know what? I'm going to sell a third as much at 300 and still my economy will be just fine. And I'm going to save or hoard this precious resource. And suddenly, you know, this is obviously a domino and uh, effect that that's a runaway. And at that point, the US military says, this, you can't just do that. You can't just pull the oil off the market. This is a global resource and we need to, you know, police this for the world and make sure that it remains available. And then the Chinese are going to say, what makes you guys decide that you get to control this resource? We care about it too. And suddenly you've got a resource war. And that's scary to me because now as you're in this energy decline scenario, instead of spending energy to, in, in an energy trap scenario to build an infrastructure, you're spending all your energy fighting a war, which is a very destructive process. Um, you're not putting that, that huge investment to good. But it's more, it seems more plausible to me that we would, as a human species, focus our efforts on conflict and a personalized attack on some other people, different people, than realize that, you know, it's, we are the problems ourselves. It's our expectations. It's our energy uh, usage, we need to cut down, we need to invest this huge effort, sort of a world, world War II scale effort or Apollo Project effort. But without a Hitler. Without a, without a demon. Exactly. Yeah. Without a demon. Because each step along the way makes sense based on human psychology of what we want, what we need, what, we, what, what we've done before. Mm-hmm. And at no step of the way does saying, wait a minute, let's all take a step back. Has that ever happened before? How do you feel about the future? How do you personally feel, if you don't mind my asking? You know, I've gone through all the stages of denial and anger and grief and all this business. And now I guess I'm just a spectator. Uh, I want to be a little more than a spectator, though. I want. I mean, that must add a time scale to it. I don't have kids. Oh, you don't have kids. Okay, sorry. Yeah, no. So, um, but I have two cats and had three chickens until recently. So, but, you know, it's fascinating. Okay. What we're going through. And if you look at the perspective of this, you know, blip, this, this absolute tear that we've been, been on in fossil fuels and realize that this is a temporary phase, we're living at, in some sense, at the most interesting time in human history. We're living at the time when this thing might turn around 
And how are we going to handle that? That's that to me is just you know interesting in the sense of the China. I've got a front row seat, right? <laughs> yeah, I've got a front row seat to the most uh, sort of amazing spectacle, perhaps of, of human history. And there's some you know popcorn eating uh, kind of reaction there that wow, okay, this is just going to be interesting to watch. I'd rather not go that way. So I would rather figure out ways that I can help bring awareness to people about these problems and challenges. And I, I should often catch myself and try not to use the word problem because problem implies solution. And I like the word predicament better than problem because this is a very, you know, wicked, as some people call it, problem where the solutions are not easy or forthcoming and it's more of a response than a solution. So how do we respond to this predicament? At some level, I look at this as we have built civilization and imagine civilization as a stadium, and we are filling up the stadium with people as we increase our population. And at some point, we fill up the stadium so overfull that it collapses. And it turns out that the event that the people were coming to see was the collapse of the stadium. <laughs> um, that, that more people, by, by its nature, if we do suffer some giant collapse, it will be almost by definition when the most possible people are alive to witness it. It's because of the population and all of its associated demands and, and needs. That's what's causing the problem. And so you just have this built-in tragedy that whatever happens, it's going to be maximally bad because the most possible people will be impacted. And you're going to be in your section is is not the one that's going to be is very unlikely that your section is going to happen to be the one that doesn't fall down. Yeah, go down. Well, you know, it, so if we have the resource war kind of approach, you can imagine, if maybe our military leaders think this way that if we can just be the the last one standing in this, we suddenly have a much reduced global pressure on our system because it's been so catastrophic that we can build back to, you know, put the pieces back together. If the carrying capacity of the planet is 5 billion, yeah. we're over it now and say, say that all these wars happen and now the population is 2 billion. Exactly. Someone might naively say, problem solved. Right. Now we move on. Of course, the pop, presumably this war does not leave the earth where it was before. I think it's going to be really challenging. There's, there's a, a book that a colleague of mine recommended. Uh, his name is Frank Shu. He's a prominent astrophysicist and, and moved on to energy concerns. So, you know, it's a, it's a club. And so he recommended this book called Earth Abides. And it's an old book from probably the 50s or 60s. And it's about, as many of these sort of apocalyptic stories, the kind of... Uh, pretense is absurd and it's not something worth really considering but some giant you know uh, disease knocks out 99.9 percent of the people or some large fraction of people and so it's it's sort of how do the survivors kind of find each other and sort of rebuild uh life and one thing that's fascinating about it to me is that the the kids in this story because you know they they start you know, repopulating at some level. The protagonist of the story cares deeply about science and technology and the amazing world that we've built. 
and wants the next generation to sort of pick up those pieces and, and build from that. And it's very clear that these kids have no interest in that path. It just doesn't seem to have any applicability to the world they live in, mm-hmm. which, you know, th- their concerns are about hunting the local deer just, and just living they're, Yeah. They move back to more subsistence living with some of the benefits of, of what we've, you know, handed to them in terms of knowledge and technology, but they don't want, they don't care about learning to read. They don't care about the library that has this, you know, bank of basically an instruction set on how to recreate this world. They, they really don't care. So, and I think that that rings true to me because as kids grow up, they see the world around them as normal, no matter what it looks like. And there's an acceptance there. And so I don't think the future generation is going to really care about getting back to where our generation is. So yeah, I'm not sure that the scenario... Like thousands of years from now, at least. Possibly, possibly. But they won't have the, the oil lying on exactly. the surface of the planet like we do. That we had the easy stuff, right. And so the kind of oil that we get today requires high technology, right? These are deep wells, deep ocean, you know, the easy stuff is long gone. And so if you're starting kind of from scratch, you may not ever get there. Yeah. You might need a hundred million years to get there. That's yeah, whatever. Not, yeah. 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 You need to basically almost erase. Well, I, yeah, I just don't know what happens. Obviously so, nobody does. Feeling inspired. Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. I want to transition to leadership now because I want to tell you what gives me hope and purpose and meaning in all of this. Because okay. I was kind of exploring, what you're saying sounds very similar to what it feels like to me. Oh, and one last piece that I feel is really important. Uh, one last piece from my side, at least, is that I think a lot of people think of, well, we've been through recessions. I mean, sometimes, you know, we have negative growth for a while. You know, some people lose their jobs. Maybe, you know, it's, it's a problem for them, but we rebound and, and we, we recover. And I think they think there'll be a correction to the market, sort mm-hmm. of. But when the issue, when, so when the issue is money, okay, so maybe some of the money supply dwindles or something like that. When the issue is the population, it's not a little bit of money goes away. It's the population drops. And when we have a 10% blip in some foreign market, our, our markets are so intertwined, it affects us immediately in a big way. And we can't handle that. I mean, we lose our, we lose our, our cool over that. Now you're talking about major parts of the population dropping. That's not like a little correction of the market. That's like fundamental changes to how we, of, of what we think of it. It's like Black Plague type stuff. It's uncharted territory for us. And nothing that we have before prepares us for it. Like we, whatever we right. think might happen, it's probably bigger. That's right. And, you know, consider the fact that the, the modern world we've bit, built is highly dependent on stability and supply chains and resources that are mined from all over the world. And if you start disrupting those things, now, just the simple things that we, we never, never consider like, oh, you know, guess what? We, we can't make iPhones right now because thallium is important and that's all coming from, you know, Gabon or what, you know, I'm just making up stuff. But, mm-hmm. but you can imagine that the order that we've created allows amazing 
things to happen. But as you start poking holes in that, we're kind of fragile. We're kind of crystalline. We're we're not amorphous. We don't have local capabilities that can do basically everything that the world at large can do. We're fragmented and and uh, specialized and interdependent in ways that we've never seen before. And as long as you can maintain that, you can do some amazing things. But if that gets disrupted, I think we'll find that we're ill-prepared. And it's a lot like when San Diego lost its electricity for, for 12 hours, the whole, the whole county. We were so fragile, it just broke, it broke us. Mm-hmm. If that had been a protracted problem, you know, there would have been some solutions to come you know, gain the most important capabilities back. But you can imagine if, if something is happening that, that's disruptive on a global scale, that all the things we take for granted suddenly become exposed as, as not viable anymore. To what extent do people get that? Or what percent of the population? <laughs> okay, well, I, I've got a great little uh, statistic that uh, 60% of people are naturally by their you know, personality, uh, the type of people who really strongly favor what they see directly, hear, touch, feel, direct sensory input. They sense the world around them and that informs what they think is real. And, you know, I'm not knocking that. That's a very legitimate way to operate. But when you describe an unprecedented scenario that they can't look around or they can't look in the history books, they see no evidence for this kind of thing. Just can't go there. They can't go. So 60% of people just can't entertain, you know, that this is a serious concern. So we're looking at 40% tops. And then of those 40, it's, there's going to be other issues there. That's right. Not, not all of those 40% who are not that particular personality attribute are going to be on board. There will be other reasons why they reject this idea. So now, as hopeless as, we, as things can feel, a big thing for me, a big way out is, or, I mean, the big thing that is, is a possible way out is, is if, we take a, if we take our foot off the gas pedal, mm-hmm. then ultimately, if we don't shift away from growth and externalizing costs, seems to me like of the, of the system, those two beliefs driving that system, those goals, as long as they're there, we can make something more efficient, but we're still going to keep an efficient uh, system that with the goal of growth made more efficient will grow more efficiently. No matter how much you think in the short term, LEDs will use less energy than, than, than uh, incandescence. Ultimately, like widening a road, eventually the, we figured out we, the new road is congested or the, the wider road is more congested than it, or is as congested as the non-wide. I think we're on track to LEDs to using more energy with LEDs than we did with incandescence. We certainly quickly use more energy in incandescence than we did whale oil. That mm-hmm. didn't take very long. And mm-hmm. if we had to go back to whale oil, we would light a lot less. Yeah, no. because LEDs are so efficient. You just put them everywhere. You know, yeah. why not? <laughs> yeah, you use them more and you use more use them more each one and you use more of them. And so there's Jevons paradox and things like that. Yeah. And we don't it's everywhere. It's so it's I don't know about you, but like do you see it like when someone says, oh we'll just use nuclear. And you're like, that's you're just gonna like the pattern seems pretty clear. Like it feels to me like a gut reaction now that I can kind of tell when it's there. And if someone asks me, I can like go through the middle steps to why it seemed obvious that Uber was going to increase congestion and that self-driving cars are going to do it more. And that if we made airplanes solar, then 
it's just forced. It's still making, it's still driving the system toward it's the outcomes you were talking about. Yeah. And I have a real problem with the word just that, that often comes up. Why don't we just, why can't we just, we're just going to, you know, and nothing is just so easy. Mm-hmm. So that that's part of it is that it's a, it's a complex situation, a complex world. Uh, everything has costs and side effects. And I'm not sort of a, a, a fan of the easy, easy solution. And when you talk about letting your foot off the gas, I really like that analogy because I feel like that's a very, uh, very sensible thing to do faced with uncertainty. If you don't know what's happening in the traffic ahead, like, and somebody's telling you that there might be just a total standstill, you might not want to slam the brakes just yet because you haven't seen the evidence yourself, but you should at least be prepared and not be pedaled to the metal. And so I think about that with, uh, say, a transition to a renewable infrastructure, as challenging as that may be, as expensive as it may be, as hard as it may be, as, you know, there may be some sacrifice involved. I feel like we, we're looking at a sign that says cliff ahead. And we could just keep barreling forward, accelerating with our foot on the pedal and say, I don't know if I trust that sign. Or we could say, you know, there's a chance that sign is right. So maybe we should turn before we get there. And so the economist would say, well, if you turn too early, you've missed some opportunity. You know, why not use the fossil fuels that are cheaper and more convenient as long as we can and get as much out of that as we can before we turn. And my feeling is, gosh, you know, if we turn early and suddenly we find ourselves with a renewable infrastructure, is that so bad? Like, what have we lost in doing that, really? And and it's a prudent thing to do. And I was speaking with a friend about this at some point years ago. And I said, why, why don't we turn if we see this, this sign that says cliff ahead? And he said, because we've seen that sign so many times. Yeah. We've learned to ignore that sign. It's, you know, that's absolutely right. I think that's the situation that, you know, show me the evidence and maybe then I'll, I'll react. But if, if it's just this kind of theoretical abstract projection of, of concerns by pointy headed people, then uh, we can, we can ignore that. Yeah. Actually my friend who of all the people I've spoken to has the most knowledgeable awareness of global warming is what anyone else would call a climate change denier. Precisely because he, he says, for thousands of years, there's always been some group of people saying, it's all going to end in our lifetimes. Trust me and do what I say. And he says, looks like that to me now. I don't see the difference. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, there's a science. And I, you know, it ultimately got to where I sent him the IPCC reports. And he pointed out to me, there, there's some things in there where what did he send? He sent some stuff where like, there were a bunch of corrections to some of the measurements. And I was like, well, yeah, well, you know, sometimes you find the miscalibrated equipment or something. And he, said, he pointed out they always moved in the same direction. And if it was really miscalibrations, sometimes you'd expect it to go sometimes up, sometimes down. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this guy really knows what he's talking about. And it's, he's actually changed a little bit. But yeah, it, and no one can really go through all the science. And if you, I don't know, I look at the IPCC people, I look at Al Gore. And they keep meeting, they keep flying all around the world and doing things that we, that they're saying we can't do. And you say, well, all right, well, Al Gore in Inconvenient Sequel, he saved the, the deal with India. I don't know if you saw it, but. I saw, I saw the first one, but not the second. So there's a scene where India, it's, it's before the Paris Agreement and India is saying, look, you guys use coal to get where you are. We want to get where you are. We want to do that. 
And so we're going to need coal. And he does some last minute, Al Gore does some last minute stuff, gets a deal with Solar City to do something with India. So India signs the agreement and helps him make it through in the process. He's flying all over, because he's flying all over the place. And I think it's fair for someone watching this. See, if you ask people, should he have done all that flying? That certainly put his usage or his emissions over the IPCC recommendations for yeah. an individual. And I think a lot of people would say, well, it was worth it because yes, he used more in that time, but the gain that he got was worth it. But I think the reason they're saying that is not because they've calculated in their head what the gain was, relatively speaking. I think it's because they want that excuse themselves. And mm -hmm. as a result, for whatever he says, when they look at, their, at his behavior, or for that matter, all the IPC scientists who get together all the time and they have these elaborate affairs, they say, well, they justified a behavior that broke the rules. Well, I certainly don't want global warming, but in, 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 a, in a crash, an SUV is much safer. And my child's safety, yeah, I, I agree in global warming, but I'm going to get the SUV, just like Al Gore did his thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you, I don't see a lot of leadership in the area of the environment. I see a lot of people telling people what to do, which I don't call leadership. I call that telling people what to do. Yeah, bossing. Yeah, actually, I just today looked up the word convince because every time I hear the word convince, I think in my head, I convert the word convince to provoke debate. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to convince someone to do something, generally what you're actually doing is provoking them to debate you about it, which often gets them to dig their heels in. So I looked up the word, the vict in, or vince in vic, it's the same as victor. So it's, mm -hmm. it's about defeating the other person. Mm -hmm. And when you come to someone and say, I'm going to convince you about something, or if you just feel that way and don't say it, people mm -hmm. don't like to be victored over, to be to right. defeated. They, they would like to be invincible. Yes. <laughs> and so... In the midst of all this, there are a few things that changed things for me because for a while I felt like, oh, well, might as well just go for the partying and have fun because there's nothing we can do about this. But then I thought a couple of things. One was that the changes that I made in my life, listeners of this podcast know a couple of big ones. There's one that was, I, I noticed how much of my garbage came from food packaging. And so I gave myself this challenge. Could I go for a week without any packaged food? Mm -hmm. And I made it two and a half weeks uh, before I bought my first thing. And then I, when I bought my first packaged food, I was like, I didn't really need to get this from a package. It was onions. I got a bag of onions. I could have bought loose onions. Mm -hmm. And that was about four years ago. And I'm not at zero packaging, but the last time that I threw out my garbage, it took me 16 months to fill up my, my load of garbage. Mm -hmm. I didn't plan. There's no way I could have imagined at the beginning that I would go from throwing out my garbage once a week to throwing it out less than once a year. But now looking back, I see that once I started that, it was inevitable that I would finish, come get to where I am. And hopefully it'll be longer the next time because mm -hmm. every step was improving my life. And along the way, was when I was actually watching David McKay, and he, he said that a flight New York LA round trip was roughly a year's worth of drive. Depends on, that's coach, depends on if, how much you drive and so forth. So there's a lot of variables, but in that ballpark. Mm -hmm. That led me some time later. The combination of learning that, plus, oh, I forgot to mention that the throwing away stuff less, that's the side effect. The main effect was that I found out that vegetables and fruit, I find more delicious. And once I started going to the farmer's market, cost me less. I spend less time preparing, except when friends are coming over and it becomes a more social thing. So that when friends are over, it's like, that's a, it, it makes my life better. I really mm -hmm. love cooking from fresh vegetables and going to the farm. And it was a value shift that I didn't anticipate happening. And so then when I saw this, that flying, my flying, was, I was polluting a lot more than I thought. I thought that other challenge worked pretty well. What kind of challenge can I do here? And I gave myself a challenge to go for a year without flying. Mm -hmm. And anticipating that day 366, I would almost certainly be on a flight because I like to travel. Mm -hmm. And as the months went on, I was, 
replacing all the things. Like right after that happened, my sister was like, hey, want to come with, with me and the kids? My nieces and nephew, we're going to go to Tokyo. It's $800 round trip. Wow, that's, let's start my year after I get back from that trip. And I thought, mm-hmm. no, no, I can't. That's not what this is about. Mm-hmm. And by three, definitely by six months in, I was like, let's, let's see how long I can get this going. So March will, be, will begin my fourth year of not flying. And again, it's, I've replaced it with stuff that I like more. My life, by my standards, is better. Now, other people would, and, and I have to say, there's family and work that I have, like everybody reacts, oh, well, I have family work. Those things, I live in the same world as everybody else. And so I had to work and figure out how to resolve those things. But when I did, I really liked the results. And so I had this experience that sharing these things is not, I'm not in, in no way do I feel like I'm sharing deprivation and sacrifice. I'm trying to share that there's something that I think people will like it if they experience it. And another piece was I had a guy on my show who pointed out, he told me, I'm going to say it loosely. There's a more precise way to put it, which is that the number one predictor of whether someone will get solar on their house is not how much money they'll save or their politics or how much money they have, but it's how many people in the zip code already have solar, Mm -hmm. which tells me that community influences people in these social and cultural changes. Yeah, we're social animals. We we pay attention to what other people do. Yeah. And so giving people's facts and figures and doom and gloom, that has influenced a lot of people, but I think a small percentage of the population. And I think we've tapped out the most, most of them. But community is another story. And getting people to experience a difference can lead to them wanting to... What I've felt is if the little changes improve my life a little bit, and then big changes will improve my life a lot, which happened with me because it started with food and then flights were bigger for me than food. And I'm trying to... The Leadership in the Environment podcast is my first step of trying to instigate that change. And when I first started doing it, I started talking to people. Oh, oh, there's one other piece. There's uh, one little habit I have is I pick up at least one piece of trash per day. And I pick it up off the ground, put it in a trash can. It's not decreasing the amount of trash. I'm just moving it from one place to another. But for various reasons that are hard to explain, but if you do it, it's a rewarding and oddly educational experience. And I was talking to a former student and... After I'd given a series of talks at NYU on leadership in the environment that mainly got pushback from people, people didn't like to be lectured on environmental action. I'm just talking with a student and he says, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to go for 30 days, picking up 10 pieces of trash per day. I didn't ask him to do it. And at the end of the month, I asked him how it went. And he said, at the beginning of the month, he felt weird picking up trash. At the end of the month, he felt weird passing it by without picking it up. Mm -hmm. And though I'd never spoken to him about food at all, and he's a weightlifter who's concerned about how much protein he gets. He took it on himself to start reducing the amount of meat that he ate while still maintaining all his dietary whatever. And he just did that on his own because he liked it. And he's, I, I keep in touch with him and he's since kept that up. He's not doing that for me. He's not doing that for, he's doing it because he feels it's right. So I thought, I wonder if I can get people trying these things out and experiencing this. Now, even if I talk to a lot of people, that's not a lot of influence because I can't talk to 7, 7 billion people. But not long after starting this podcast, I started getting people on it who are like really big people, like Dan Pink, who's had 10, 20, 30, 40 TED Talk views. And other people with like approaching like the number of TED Talk views by of people who've been on this podcast is nearing 100 million, just as one measure of. And I started realizing that there are people unlike me, they are at a leverage point of a system. And someone like Oprah is in a lot of people's community. And so all these people who are saying, if I act but no one else does, then what I do doesn't matter. If they see someone in the community, Oprah, LeBron, Serena, Barack, Elon, Sergey, Larry, people like that, I think that they might, and 
I'm not talking about celebrity, but because a celebrity does something like I'm not talking about endorsement, but if, if someone that's in a lot of people's community communities were to share their environmental values, act on their environmental values, and then people could hear it and say, not I'm going to follow Oprah because she's Oprah, but I'm going to, Oprah shared her values, acted on them and changed, shared that she liked it. Maybe I could do that too. I think it's, it's a strategy that's not convincing. It's not relying on celebrity power, but I think has a potential to influence lots of people. And it's driving me, that's, what's, that's what this podcast is a first step in doing. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's essential that we reach out to as many people as we can and share our perspectives and our values and our um, experiences. Yeah. What we've done. I think those personal stories are important for, for people to understand how they might fit in and what they might do. It, it is very difficult not to sound preachy and it's very difficult not to sound alarmist, especially when there's a reason for an alarm. I mean, we're not, we're not advocating this because we, we like deprivation. We're, we're, doing, we're advocating this because we see what could happen if we don't collectively cut back. And what uh, could happen if we do collectively cut back. Yeah, we've seen the benefits. And, and they are, as you say, um, multifaceted and unexpected. And, you know, I, I mean, at one level, I, I grew up in, in Tennessee where we had seasons. Uh, Unlike Southern California. Right. Brutal, you know, hot summers and then, you know, really cold winters and snow at times. And, and uh, San Diego is, is almost steady, but not quite. And so it actually, at some level, helps me to live without heating or cooling my house in San Diego because I experience the seasons more than I would otherwise. That, you know, there's a cold season and I look forward to you know, to those changes. And that's something I would not have expected would be a result of, uh, of changing my, my habits in terms of, uh, heating and cooling. But now I'm, I I feel like I'm in better touch with the rhythms of, of our world because I, I'm experiencing those rhythms. What I hope is, what I expect is that at some point it'll be, I don't know, LeBron James saying something like that. And, millions, tens of millions of people who would not have listened to any pointy head person will say, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And the way to get there. So what I, I, I was going to say that I, I think, you know, one thing I learned from my blog, one of the later posts was, um, and, and I really stopped uh, doing uh, active posts by and large. Um, and, and part of that, you, you alluded to that before, I'll just mention that because the trajectory of the blog, uh, we've got some problems. Let's look at how much we can get from XYZ uh, resources. You can only do that process really once. I'm not going to keep putting up posts on how much we can get from wind. That's just kind of checked off. Uh, likewise, what big changes did I make in my life on on the energy front? Well, you know, once I've addressed you know electricity and natural gas and food and travel, you know, I've I've addressed it. But one of the last posts was about personality and recognizing that. Like it or not, the Myers-Briggs uh, assessment of personality, and I will certainly admit there aren't 16 tidy types of people, but you know there are measures that kind of are spectral. You have people that are hard over on one side and the other introvert versus extrovert, for, for example. And, and so I found that 75% of the visitors to my blog were either my personality type or the adjacent type, very you know kindred types. And so one thing I learned from that is if you wanted to reach 
more than, you know, those two types constitute maybe 4% of the population. And so I, I was, I was accessing 4% of the population reading my, my work. And so that that's not good enough, but they clearly, those people appreciate my voice, right? The, the way I present the information, the, the analytic style is a personality match. If, if I wanted to, or if you wanted to reach a larger audience at some level, you've got to bring in a team of people spanning those personality types who share the overall concerns and vision, uh, but have a different way of, of appreciating it and a different way of communicating it and a different way of responding to it. And if those people can also, you know, have a voice on the forum, whatever that forum might be, then you stand to reach more people. And so when you say something like, like LeBron James or, or Oprah Winfrey, at some level, that's kind of the strategy. Uh, although these are well-known people, they're also going to see life from a different point of view and one that might resonate with folks that you can't reach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I definitely hope for... I mean, the types of people I tend to get, like TED Talkers and number one best-selling books of nonfiction and so forth, and I really hope that people take that someone takes my podcast and says, all right, Josh is reaching some groups, but he's not reaching, I don't know, maybe they're in France. You know, he's not speaking to French people at all. And someone starts leadership in the environment in France, the leadership in the environment, young people, or leadership in the environment, old people, or you know, whatever group that isn't me, or that I'm not reaching for whatever reason. I'd love to have lots of other people doing reaching other communities and just communities will mean different sets of values and so forth. But I think most people want clean air and water and they don't want mercury in their fish and that they can work together on that. So I've also, so let me ask you, I, I want to, what I do with everyone on the show, if they, if they're up for it is the environment means something to you. And this is what we've been talking about it. I feel like, and what I ask people to do at their option is to act, to do something that they're not already doing to act on those values and to come back on the second time to share what it was like. Now, you've already done a lot of these things. And you've shared it already before you ever met, before you ever met me. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if you'd be up for doing something new that you haven't already done. And you don't have to save all the world's problems, figure out all the world's problems by yourself overnight. But to do something that you maybe have been thinking about doing. Mm-hmm. Do you up for doing something? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, part of my you know, lack of hesitation really is that I know that those things can be rewarding. Right? So what you're asking me to do at some level is not give something up or sacrifice. It's, would you like a new adventure? Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so fine. Yeah. I can, I can pick up a new adventure. It takes some mental energy and effort and, you know, we have our lives and we have our distractions and we, uh, we get into our routines. And so, you know, it's easy to put off, even though these things can be fun. It doesn't mean that we want to add a new one every day because it does take some real, you know, recalibration and, and some thinking and, and it's somewhat distracting. So, but yeah, it's been a little while since I added a new thing. So I could. Okay. Yeah. I, it's funny. Cause at my side, I ask all these people to do it. And then if each one of them asked me back, I'd be like, oh, man, I, I talked to more than like, I talked to a few people a week and I can't say mm-hmm. a new one every week. Never mm-hmm. know. And then someone gets me and I'm like, like John Lee Dumas was a guest. He's a big entrepreneurship podcaster and he lives in Puerto Rico and he was picking up once a month this year, he's going, or uh, last year, he, um, I'm actually going to interview him at, at, for the one year mark pretty soon. And he would take a bag, go to the beach, pick up garbage off the beach. And 
then his niece visited and like she went out and he was talking to his neighbors and it was really kind of fun sounding. And I'd been thinking about plogging for a while. So do you know plogging? No. It's, it's a Swedish term for picking up garbage while you run. Okay. So from an exercise standpoint, it means you're running plus at random times you're doing lunges. It's kind of funny because most people bring a bag with them when they, with, when they plug. And I've been thinking about it for a long time and challenged by the New York City having so much garbage. I, I didn't know if I'd make it one block if I had to pick up every piece of trash on the way. But then I heard him figuring out how he did stuff. And I was like, you know what? Next time I go running, I'm going to plug. And I basically switched from running to plugging. I had to figure out what would make it work to, so I can make it more than a block running mm-hmm. in New York. But it's, I, I, this is just to say that I get inspired back from people. So yeah, it's hard to pick things up and you have to, and, but then sometimes something really does, it's like, oh, wow, I'm glad I did that. So is there anything you've thought of that you have in mind that you've been thinking of doing for a little while? Uh, nothing immediately comes to mind. So I will have to put a little thought into what, what's, on, what's on the unchecked list. Do you mind if we go back and forth a little bit just to see if anything comes up? Sure. Anything come up? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm thinking about my daily routine, right? That's the easiest thing is if, if you can uh, plug something into your daily routine that, that is, is, is added. And, you know, my daily routine is that I, I bike to work and um, I'm on trails for a lot of that time. So, you know, dirt trails, nature, and, you know, it's not necessarily an, an inventive thing because you're talking about picking up trash, but you know, it's, it's a fairly clean environment, but I do occasionally run across, you know, trash. It takes some effort when, when you're on a bike mm-hmm. to, you know, stop and say, you might have to get off the bike to pick something up. So that's something I could do. I predict you'll find that getting on and off the bike at your start and destination, I, I don't know, San Diego, but certainly New York, when you're already getting off the bike, there's enough trash around there that mm-hmm. you wouldn't have to stop on the trail if, if all mm-hmm. your target was only one or two pieces of trash per day. That's so true. Now when I pick up trash, I, I generally don't have to step out of my path. At some point during the day, there'll be something that I would almost step on. Yeah. That, so that's probably not the right direction for me because my environment is, is pretty trash-free. And I also don't see it as, as personally meaningful in terms of solving solving the problems that we need to face because i'm more more concerned about resource usage and so i think maybe for me it would be more about my own personal resource usage um as you said maybe packaged goods but i'm maybe more interested in looking at the energy and resource costs of those things packaging is one of the one aspect but i can imagine being more vigilant about where my my goods and services are sourced so that i'm i'm not not purchasing apples from new zealand or whatever it might be so you know it's it's not something i'm particularly vigilant about right now but but that's something i could could fold in so if it was to go for some period of time and i I make it time limited because i don't want people to think that like they're gonna have to commit for the whole life Mm-hmm. I, I say make it a smart goal if you know you know specific measurable actionable mm-hmm. because i like to have people in a second time to share what the experience was like and how long do you think it would take to if you're up for a, a second time it would be a shorter conversation than this one mm-hmm. uh, how long do you think it would take to get a feel for if it's stuck or if you liked it or if you didn't like it or if it's too much of a, of a pain or whatever i think i'm not fully settled yet on what the thing will be because I'd like to have it 
you know, maximize its, its importance and impact. And so I need to think a little bit and be quantitative at some level about, you know, what, what's, what change am I looking at and, and pick, uh, on that basis. So it would take a little bit for me of analysis and based on not knowing what the activity is, it's hard for me to know how quickly I would, you know, have fully explored the consequences. So I can't really say yet what the timeline might be. Okay. That makes sense. Also, one thing I, I say to people is that it's for what I'm asking, it's the magnitude isn't so important because I find that usually by doing it, they figure out more in the process of like how to specify it more. Mm-hmm. Whereas by thinking about it, but not doing it, that's really hard to make happen. Mm-hmm. So I could either press a little bit and see if, if, uh, if you're up for narrowing it down now, or I could say, maybe I could email you in a week and see if, if it's like kind of settled. Yeah, I'd prefer the latter just because it's just my personality. I do approach everything that I do with some some analysis and some thought. And so just sort of a spontaneous uh, goal would, would not, I think, match me so well. Okay, so if I email, is it, can I email you in a week and see, like, yeah, is there anything up together? Okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. And this is by far the longest conversation I've had on this podcast. But yeah. I, th- this to me is like, you know, the first time I read Limits to Growth, I felt like this is what, how I looked at things, but I never actually did the math to see how it all came out. It was such a refreshing read. I mean, it was a sobering read. I guess it was the 30-year anniversary one. But I feel like what you've said in, in reading your blog and speaking to you, it feels like this is so important and so such a reasonable way of looking at things. I can't believe everyone doesn't look at things this way. And I almost take for granted that everyone gets the liberation that you get from getting the math behind it. And, but most people don't. And I hope maybe a book comes out of what you've done or I mean, a PBS special or something. It feels like it's not out there and it's some of the most important stuff. I really appreciate your sharing all this and following through to take things to a step to, to a degree that most people don't, but everyone benefits from. I hope to see some new posts soon. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, I... It, it's on my mind occasionally that the, it's the site is somewhat dear to me. It was a huge investment during the time that I was posting for a while weekly. And these are substantive posts and took a lot of, of, of my time. And, you know, there were a lot of side benefits out of that, uh, you know, honing uh, writing skills and so forth. But, but yeah, it's been, it's been somewhat neglected. And, and part of that is, is just distractions and other aspects of life, but definitely it would be fun to do a post on, on my bike commute, it's an electric bike, and I use my solar off-grid system for the charging. So I'm really pleased that I'm doing a, a completely, you know, fossil-free daily commute. And there's some other things like uh, the performance of this electric car, uh, where the battery has declined over time. And and I, I uh, have posted about that, but I can uh, update on on what the battery has done. And that that's important because it brings perspectives on how viable is this approach to have electric transportation. And, you know, it's an open question how large a fraction of our, you know, fleet will, will transition to that, that style. It's not without its limitations. So yeah, there's de- definitely some, some uh, blog worthy topics that I've, I've gotten the queue. Well, I look forward to them. Thank you. Expecting that if I remember right, you're measuring the distance to the moon. In your, in your other time. Yeah, that's right. In fact, you know, tonight, I'm sure that the, this podcast will, will, it'll be after the fact, but tonight we have a lunar eclipse 
we have uh, six hours of telescope time. And, you know, telescope time is on, on this class of telescope is a thousand bucks an hour, which is cheap compared to, you know, a, a big tech telescope or something of that, that form, 10 meter telescope. This is a three and a half meter telescope and, and a thousand bucks an hour. If you think of renting a car, you know, that's, that's a performance machine, right? <laughs> so a few hours. yeah, it's, it, so it's, it's, uh, you know, big stuff, but, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm the weather forecast looks really good and I, yeah, I'm uh, still doing that project to test uh, general relativity using these, uh, measurements to the moon to millimeter precision. And that's rewarding, but I have to say that, you know, it's part of my perspective that science, as I've said, is really dear to me. I think that, that we've, we've kind of, science is a, a mechanism, a, a, it's a paradigm in which we've used some human shortcomings to build something stronger than humanity. And what I mean by that is scientists are, are people and they have career goals, they have ambitions, they have, you know, they, they certainly, many of them would like to be remembered for what they do and um, have a legacy. And so the opportunity to uh, dispel some longstanding scientific idea or to come up with some new thing or a new discovery, that's a, a real a real motivator. And so when you have something like, you know, general relativity or evolution or climate change or any of these big topics, you could be famous by showing conclusively and, you know, in a way that's acceptable to the scientific community based on all the you know, objective uh, criteria that it, it entails, you could become famous by, by changing a paradigm. And so that gets turned into science trying to tear itself apart all the time. That is what science does. It's picking at the, at the corners and at the nits and really trying to unravel the whole situation and by failing to unravel it, it tends to make it stronger, right? If, if you're, a, say, a climate denier and you come in with some ideas, like, uh, you know, some scientists have had ideas about why this is all malarkey. And as, as they, they look into it, but they're being objective, they realize, that, oh, no, actually, this thing is, is right. And this idea I had doesn't really pan out. That's one of the hallmarks of science is actually, you know, going with the data, going with the conclusions over your preferences. But all the time having an interest in tearing it apart. So it just gets stronger and stronger the more we try to tear it down. And so it becomes more powerful than, than humans at some level, than individuals. And I think it's a remarkable edifice that we've built. I think we've learned so much. We know about how the, uh, you know, the physical world works, the universe. And I value that. I treasure it. I don't want to lose it. And if we are morons, about how we approach the future, if we don't anticipate that there's a potential show-stopping problem in our society, then we could lose all of what we've gained in science. That's the worst case by well, reverting to a primitive society. state. Sorry? I would go further. All of what we've lost in society. Yeah, yeah. Potentially. It, it, it's potentially just enormous. And the, the risk is so asymmetric that I really hope that I'm wrong to worry as much as I do. But the fact that so few people are expressing this worry is itself a giant worry for me because how do we mitigate a problem that we don't admit is happening? It doesn't solve itself. It doesn't resolve itself. And so 
Meanwhile, yes, I'm a scientist. I'm doing this project that that has you know import in that in that context of of uh, our current scientific uh, apparatus. But if we fail, what I'm doing now means nothing. It's lost. Nobody cares about general relativity. It's just not relevant. It's not part of our world if we fail like morons. So, yes, I, I feel like I'm playing music on the deck of the Titanic, doing this, you know, very uh, high-level exercise enterprise while the ship might be, you know, heading toward the iceberg, so to speak. So I really struggle with the fact that, you know, I, I value what I'm doing there. I think it's the right thing to do in the context that we manage to keep it all together. But then the other part of me thinks, what I'm doing is a total waste of time if we fail. And shouldn't my effort be going toward doing whatever I can to raise awareness and get people to, to step back, look at the big picture, realize that there's a reason to be concerned, and really assess in a cold, hard sense, what does it mean? What can we do? What can I do? How do our values have to change so that we don't suffer this fate? I can't help but comment on some of that. It's what can I do? But also, if I can't do enough to make a difference, then it feels like not worth doing anything anyway. Just enjoy what you have and hopefully it won't hit the fan too soon. But since you, you talk about the foundation of science and, you know, if you get a PhD in physics, like you're into science. So I left science originally, not because I was, I mean, was, I started a company and I had some entrepreneurial success and it was really exciting. And then but I never didn't, I never stopped liking science. And, you know, when I started, I always thought, you know, there was like Galileo and Newton and Einstein and Feynman, and and, then there'd be Spodek. And that's what, you know, I would be like one of them. And it was one of the hard things about leaving science, leaving the practice of science was giving up on that. And I thought, well, maybe I'll be like a, a Ford. Well, maybe not Ford, but you know, some big entrepreneur, but now along the lines of what you said, Looking at this situation today, we are in a unique time period, as you said. And scientists, the people who understand who people understand nature, I think we get stuff that other people don't. And I think the role of a scientist today, like no other time, is not just to measure. Because I think the science, to me, it's overwhelmingly conclusive on many different fronts. Not just I mean, there's global warming, there's plastics, and all these different things. And the thing to do now is to find ways to act on it. Keep measuring it. Yes, by all means, keep measuring it, keep teaching it, keep studying it. But also, I think the next step is how do we change behavior on a scale and how do we actually implement that and make that happen? And to me, I feel like the role of a scientist today, well, one of the roles, there's many roles, but one role is to do something about it. That's, I feel like I'm now back into doing what I was in it for in the first place. And to me, that means a lot of leadership and a lot of learning what motivates people and developing the skills and practices of how to influence people, even when they might not agree or might not are skeptical of the science, which skepticism is healthy. And, but how do we get, how do we change behavior on a global scale to where people are glad that it happened? That to me is the role is the biggest role of a scientist today. Not to take roles as well. I struggle with this a little bit because, you know, if I look at what are my real core talents, it's, it's not aligned that well with the things that really most importantly need to happen right now. So, I mean, I can build things, I can design, I can, you know, 
uh, analyze data. I can, I have a lot of talents that, that don't necessarily mean that I'm a good communicator to people, especially people different than myself. And I'm not really interested in policy, even though policy obviously has a huge role to play. And I don't like reading giant thick dockets of, of material. So it's unfortunate. I think, you know, I'm, I'm not alone that there are scientists who see the problem, but they're not the right people to get other people to see the problem. Yeah. Scientists are, are pretty non-influential. Yeah. And so maybe it's not the role of science. Yeah, I, I, I said, I, you're one of the first people I've even said that to at all, what I was just thinking. And I've overstated a little bit because I I'm partly, partly have beliefs that are motivating myself. But I think there's a lot of scientists spreading facts. And I think that's important to get those facts and to, and to get the data. And it might not be scientists whose role. I mean, for me, I've spent the past over 10 years learning leadership, learning influence and, and learning to listen and learning to make people feel understood. And then teaching it as well so that I can help others develop those skills, which I think are the essential ones, because I don't think that simply giving people facts is going to do it. And I don't think that simply going for legislation when there isn't popular support is going to do it either. That's right. And so how do we get the popular support? And I think there the role models are less Einstein and Galileo and more Gandhi and King and Mandela. Right. And my attempt to do this was, was through a blog. I thought, you know, I, I had been teaching in classrooms and hitting, you know, 60 or 80 students at a time. And I thought this was a very important aspect of my job. But, but the blog allowed me to reach, you know, typical posts would get five, 10,000 views, sometimes, you know, uh, much more if, if they kind of hit the, the Reddit and the, those sorts of sources. So I thought, okay, this is a huge amplification and then realize that you know it's still it's still tiny and it's only attractive to people too much like myself mm-hmm. and so i i think you know that that's the difficulty here is finding somebody who's a better match to uh where most people sit who themselves can comprehend the scale of this problem because there's almost a built-in if they're like the people you want to reach, they don't get the problem, right? There's some, there's some chicken and egg issue. Well, for me there, I think, you know, there's a lot of people who, I'm not a parent either, but when people become parents, they start taking responsibility on a scale wholly different than they ever did before. People who should go and party a lot, stop partying. People change in major ways. Or other examples are animals like dogs where there's an alpha. If the alpha dog disappears for some reason, another dog becomes the alpha dog. And I'm not saying there's alpha behavior that we're looking for here, but people who are not, I don't like the terms introversion and extroversion, but people who don't have the social skills to do things, when they can develop it, like even Susan Cain, who wrote um, Quiet, it was just a huge bestseller. Like she gives a TED Talk, it's viewed by tens of millions of people. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem very introverted. Mm-hmm. She'll say, oh, I'm an introvert, it's hiding out, like I'm a closet introvert. So my view is that people can develop lots of different things if they see if there are ways for them to develop them that work, which is what I'm trying to work on, is like how to enable people to do things to, to help build leaders. But as for me personally, or I guess your blog will connect with a certain number of people and a certain or a certain um, uh, personality type, and it will not with other personality types. So my thing is what other techniques are there? What does work? And yeah, I've thought a little bit about this and I think, you know, video presentations could be effective, you know, short, 
animated, you know, 10 minute clips. I'm, I'm thinking of something along the, the line of story of stuff. You're probably familiar with, yeah, with that. I love stories. I had the executive right. director on here. So, so something of that form, you know, that, that can have broad reach has appeal. So I think, you know, that this, I, I'm very attracted to the idea of taking this um, graph that we've talked about here of the energy use as a function of a very long time scale. I think that would make a, a super, you know, sort of animated short that fits within attention spans and brings a big message in a short amount of time. But, you know, even that, it's entertainment, right? That's the problem is people watch TED because they're stimulated by the ideas, but that's kind of where it ends. Yeah, it's people go to movies to laugh or to cry. And those are kind of emotions that get us come back to come back for more. TED Talk gets you fascinated and it gets you coming back for more. But it doesn't, I don't know anyone who's, uh, very few people who've actually seriously changed their behavior. Like they watch a TED Talk and like, ah, I should do that. I'm going to do that. And mm-hmm. then do it. Yeah. One of the best TED Talks I saw came from somebody who's from UCSD and it was about why TED Talks are a waste of time. So <laughs> I really loved it. It was and, well, well put. Now that said, I do think that there are other techniques entirely, you know, experiential, like, to experience things and to, the community thing is, is my big direction. And actually, when I started the podcast, I didn't know that what's happened in the past couple of months is that corporations are now approaching me and saying, we have a problem that we can't solve it. And, it, and let, like a common thing that happens is like a CEO will say to like the sustainability team, go figure this out, but they're not actually changing themselves. Mm-hmm. And my read is that the, the sustainability team gets that as long as they haven't figured it out, we cannot figure it out and our jobs are still secure. Whereas places that are successful, that have successful cultural changes, the, the leaders behave consistently with the change that they're looking for. Mm-hmm. And inadvertently, if I speak about it in entrepreneurial terms, this podcast, I've inadvertently done some R&D and developed a, like a technology to get people to act on their environmental values in a way that they like it and to share it publicly. And so it looks like I'll be working with the corporations and talking with the leaders to have them go through the process that we sort of went through of like, do you want to take on a challenge? Yeah. And I don't want to, well, you've already done them. And as you said, you look for you, it's an adventure. Right. And an adventure with meaning, you know, an adventure that, that I think makes a difference. And that imagine not just you saying that, but imagine the CEO of fortune 100 company said that Mm -hmm. that's, that's actually a practice that I want to start doing is to start going to leaders and sharing that technology, that technique of getting people from these little things are so small, they don't matter. These big things are so big, it's too hard to, ah, this is really, I like this. And sharing not direction uh, of, uh, not direction, but like uh, instruction, seeking compliance, but sharing fun and joy or whatever adventure and offering support for others to do it as well. And that's the direction I'm going into of influencing people at leverage points of systems. I think it's a, an interesting idea and a good idea. And I think it has some real, real potential because the leaders can, can lead by example. And so the one thing that I worry a bit about is that leaders in those situations often, this is my suspicion, are really big about perceptions and they want you know, they, they put a lot of care into what other people see, which you can use to your advantage here. 
right? That that's the reason this might work is because they want to make an example. They want their lives to be visible. But one thing that I think you'll want to think about or guard against is if the show, if the illusion is more important than the actual thing. If they're not authentic and genuine. If they're not authentic, but they see this as a way to, you know, burnish their credentials in some way, shape or form, or, you know, I, I sort of, my cynical view is that anybody who stays at a, a hotel that costs $500 a night or eats at a place where it's a hundred dollars per meal, they're going to tell somebody else where they stayed, where they ate. That is, that is the value. It's not that the food is better because a $5 burrito usually beats out all of those places. It's the value is in the bragging. It's in the, the, the show. And so my sense is that the people in this kind of circle, in these circles, are driven by such concerns, which again, you can to use to advantage. an advantage. But just be aware that you'll be lucky to have some that are genuine, okay? And maybe it doesn't matter if they're not genuine. Maybe it still has the same effect if they're not genuine. But that's the real, that's what you'd really like is for somebody to truly embrace these things and do it because it feels right to them and not because of what they get to say to somebody else. Yeah, at the beginning, I didn't do it as much with you because we talked so much about values before I talked about, do you want to, inviting you to act on them. For most people, I try to, Ask, I ask them, when you think of the environment, what do you think about? What does it mean to you? And their usual answer is uh, a bit protective. Oh, of course, something I care about, you know, kids, future, something like that. And then I go back and forth a few times to, support, to show support for whatever it means to them. And it's different for everybody, but it's personal for everyone and it's meaningful for that person. And so for maybe it's, you know, everyone, it's actually a part of the podcast that I really like is hearing that part. And I have to, it's, it's actually a technique for my book of, of just listening and confirming my understanding, letting them correct me until they get, until they see that I'm not judging. I'm, I'm really curious what the, what matters to them really does. It's not something for them to be ashamed about or something to keep quiet. And sometimes it's, you know, their dog in the park. Sometimes it's going fishing with their grandfather when they were a kid, or sometimes it's some dystopic future, some movie that they saw, whatever it is, it matters to them. And I try to make it, I try to get to a point where they say, yes, that's, that's it. That's what it is for me. Mm -hmm. And then I ask them to act on that. Not on, and that's why I say, you know, it's not to fix the world's problems. And I'm I'm taking for granted that everyone cares something about something that if they act on it, everyone would agree. I'm glad you're doing that. Mm -hmm. But this technique is like emerging from doing the podcast. As I'm sure happened with you, as you did the blog, you came on to more and more things that like you couldn't have predicted would have made sense to you or would have been valuable to put on there. or You wouldn't have done before. Then you right. do it, and then at least some more and more and more. Yeah. Well, I just laid out, this is what it's all about for me now. <laughs> one of my big things. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many people are listening at this stage. <laughs> Looking down, I see we're two hours and nearly 40 minutes in. Yeah, this, this, um, I'm thinking it might be, end up being a, a chopped up multi, multi-segment situation. Yeah, I'm not sure how to... Or, or, or heavily edited. To... I'm not sure, because I'm thinking partly like, like Sam Harris, I listen to his blog, a podcast and he'll, he'll do like two, three hour podcasts and Joe Rogan does. And these are the ones that listen by millions of people. I'm not listening to by millions of people yet, but I don't know. We'll see. I'm not sure how to handle this. Like I'll have to talk to my editor and on a personal level, I almost felt self-indulgent in this because it was such to me an important conversation. The one that I've wanted to have since I started reading your, your blog, 
I could really keep going, but I'm going to, if it's, unless you want to keep going, I will. Uh, but maybe we'll stop here because we'll talk again after. Sure. After you, I, I think I'll just say one quick thing about you. You mentioned what, what's important to individuals and you kind of skipped over that with me, but I at least want to offer there are two different levels for that one. I care a lot about the splendor of our universe and, you know, by that, I mean stuff beyond the earth and just the way that physics works and that we, that we have a universe at all and that it's got stars and galaxies and that you can have places that, that form life. And it's very complex. It's rich. It's beautiful. It's amazing and doesn't care about us. Mm-hmm. Nature does not care that we're here. We're just sort of along for the ride. Part of that gives me solace and perspective to know that the universe will be fine, right? So as much as I'm invested in getting the story right for ourselves and not going, going off the cliff, part of me thinks, you know, it is what it is. There's an acceptance there. Uh, and a realization that the, some of the things I care deeply about will be absolutely fine, doesn't matter. So there, there's some value in that, but it doesn't necessarily get us out of our, our, our human affair. And so I do care more locally and at a different level, as I said, uh, about science and the institution of science and, and the amazing uh, construct that, that it is and what we've learned. I, I value that greatly. So uh, just like I care about how the universe works, I care about the fact that we know that it works this way. And, you know, so I care about that knowledge and I care about the earth. I care about, you know, I put myself mentally in places that have been very meaningful, whether it's Alaska or Grand Canyon or backpacking trips where immersed in nature. And again, I feel insignificant. I'm just, uh, I'm lucky to be a part of it, uh, but I'm not its master and I'm, I'm a, a guest on this planet. I feel that we we owe it to the planet to and and other species to uh, do right by it and not just you know make a, a mess of things. So you know it's 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 I guess many different levels then of things I I care about and it, in, in some sense there's some things that it means that I I don't care because some of the things I care about don't care about us. I, I just listened to Pale Blue Dot again the other day. I was playing it for a friend and it. I assume you've heard Sagan's Pale Blue Dot. I have not heard that. Well, you haven't? No. So I'm going to send you a couple links after this. One is to Low Tech Magazine. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I apologize in advance or do not apologize in advance for, what, for however much time you lose from everything else, because I think you're going to like Low Tech Magazine. Mm-hmm. So probably that is, it's Carl Sagan when um, Voyager, one of the spacecraft was uh, passing Saturn, I believe. He asked for time to point back at the Earth and that, that mm-hmm. distance, one pixel. Yeah. And it's his reflection an audio, a spoken word um, reflection on the experience of not long after seeing Earth from space for the first time, from you know the the beautiful marble, blue marble pictures, to now it's just one pixel, and uh, it chokes me up to hear it. Still, it did yesterday. Now that I've mentioned it to you, I'm going to have to put a link to it. So, uh, but I think what you said resonates a lot with it. Mm-hmm. And I apologize now for not having spent a little more time or asked you about that. And I appreciate that you've shared it. I'm curious, if you don't mind my asking, do you connect that? Can you make the connection from that to your day-to-day behavior or your environmental behavior? If, there's, if that's a connection to be made, is it, is it close to you? Is it natural to you? I think the immediate 
sense is that because I, I do bicycle through natural areas every day uh, on trails, surrounded by nature, I see lots of rabbits, occasionally I see bobcats or coyotes. And, and that's something I dearly value. And I, it, it really tethers me back to the earth and back to you know something that's not just our kind of ridiculous human uh, constructs of, of life. You know, it's, uh, it's something that's just going on with its own rhythms uh, outside of our our direct influence. And uh, somehow I, I just find it, it gives me solace to realize that, you know, we can, we can screw things up a lot. And of course, my goal is to do whatever I can to help us from screwing up as much as we, as I can. But even if we do, there's a, there's a continuation. There's a, there's an amazingness without us. And I find that comforting. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, if it's okay with you, I'm going to leave it right there. Fine. Yeah. Just adding my, my thanks for your time and, and appreciation for all of what you've shared and certainly on this podcast and looking forward to following up. Well, I don't mean to close for you. Is there, is it, are you comfortable with closing or is there anything else? To yeah, say? that's, that's uh, I think fine for me. We, uh, covered a lot of interesting topics. Of course, this is uh, something that, that uh, it's a deep and rich and complex subject, and there's no way that a short amount of time can, can really uh, do more than scratch the surface. But. All right, so I'll wrap up there. Thank you very much, Tom. Sure. Great to be on. Good luck with your, your endeavors. Thank you. I'm glad you listened all the way through. I'm not sure how many will listen to that long of an episode, but if you did, I presume you found it as valuable as I did. Since you're a select group, and I consider this episode one of the most important, I would love your thoughts. Should we talked about in this episode get out more? Or is it interesting, but not worth following up too much on? You can find me at joshuaspodek.com slash contact connect, or just go to joshuaspodek.com and click the connect link in the upper right corner. I'd love to hear from you. I'll keep this comment short because you've listened to a lot. feel inspired to then act go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others value means better and worse and living by your values means living better by your values you may struggle at first but it's the hero's journey from living by others values to living by yours people say that little things add up i won't argue against it but what i find counts is acting Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.